right on we time. We are right on, on time. time. Good morning, everyone. Can't see anything right now. We'll let you clean your lenses. Smooch all over my glasses. Good weekend. What a great weekend. Good. Had a great weekend. Good weekend. Yeah. Ever embracing for what's going to happen this week? Yeah, yeah, you ready for this week? We are expecting a very busy one, so let's get started with five things to know for this Monday, April 3rd, 2023. Donald Trump set to arrive in New York today ahead of his arraignment tomorrow. Trump facing more than 30 counts related to business fraud. Also, former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson says he is now running for president. The former governor says that he is already also calling on Trump to step out of the race. Meanwhile, oil prices spiking overnight after OPEC Plus announced a surprise cut in production. The Biden administration slamming the move in their response. Also this morning, NASA set to announce the astronauts chosen for its Artemis II mission. It'll be the first manned space flight around the moon in 50 years. And go Tigers! G-E-A-U-X, the way we spell it in Louisiana, by the way. LSU's women's basketball team, as we say, Lady Tigers, if you're from Louisiana, has won its first NCAA title, beating Iowa. CNN This Morning starts right now. There you go. What's it called? Fight song? First national title for their women's team. It's amazing. I know, it's amazing. They were great. And the coach, as Kayla and I always talk about, the, the coach I'm obsessed is, with oh my gosh, she's good. This is, this brings me back. I feel like it's the 80s all over again with me being at LSU, but this is great. Their first time, so proud. Like all of my friends from home were so excited and texting. My mom and my sister were all watching. We were all on, it's just really, really great. Uh, we did, by the way, Caitlin, we thought it was going to be like Alabama. I'm not like, you know, busting your chops, but we thought Alabama was going to. We had no idea. This was a surprise that LSU would end up. Yeah, yeah. This. This, and this is a women's team. It, yeah. It's still amazing because they were playing Iowa. And Caitlin <laughs> Clark on the Iowa's team is incredible. I and love what LSU's coach said about her. Yeah, she's, she's a really generational good. player about. Oh, she Caitlin really Clark is. And the other she really team. is. There's like no one like yeah. her. But I Congrats. also was interesting it was to see her and ask questions. She was so emotional, she could barely get it out. So everybody was crying. Okay, so we'll have a lot more on that later, but there's a lot going on here in New York. Just hours from now, former President Trump will return here in New York City as he prepares to turn himself in tomorrow to face criminal charges. Here's a live look at Trump's private plane in West Palm Beach, Florida. Trump says he will leave Florida around noon today. He was spotted waving to supporters over the weekend as he left his golf club. This will be the first time in U.S. history that next president will be arraigned in court. Later today, the judge expected to decide if he'll allow cameras in that courtroom so the American public can watch all of it because it is history unfolding here. The Secret Service has been helping coordinate security at the courthouse in lower Manhattan. We are told Secret Service employees will be at the metal detectors. And the former president is not expected to be handcuffed because he'll be surrounded by federal agents when he's processed, fingerprinted, and has his mugshot taken. So let's begin this hour with senior legal affairs correspondent Paula Reed. Paula, good morning. Good morning. Um, all right, so he gets here today, and then tomorrow it, he'll be in court. The question is, between this morning and the court hearing tomorrow, will this indictment be unsealed? That's one of the big questions right now, because the charges in this historic case are still under steel. Now, mind you, that has not stopped the former president from attacking the district attorney. Even the judge will oversee the case. And his lawyers tried to do a little cleanup on those attacks over the weekend, but they've made it clear that whatever these charges are, they're going to fight. 
Former President Donald Trump is expected to arrive in New York Monday afternoon, ahead of what will be the first ever arraignment of a former president of the United States. Over the weekend, his legal team was on the attack. The team will look at every every um, potential issue that we, we will be able to challenge and we will challenge. And of course, I very much anticipate a motion to dismiss coming because there's no law that fits this. But the charges against Trump have not yet been revealed, even to his lawyers, and will only be unsealed Tuesday unless the judge agrees to grant a request made by several media outlets, including CNN, to unseal it sooner. CNN has learned the charges include more than 30 counts related to business fraud. A grand jury returned an indictment Thursday after a years-long probe into a hush money payment made to adult film star Stormy Daniels in the days leading up to the 2016 election. Trump has gone on the offense, attacking District Attorney Alvin Bragg, calling him corrupt, claiming Bragg is using a venue where it is impossible for him to get a fair trial. And as he has done before, even going after the judge who will oversee this case, claiming he hates him and alleging he treated his companies viciously in a prior case. It's deeply ironic that a person who spent a good part of his four years in the White House trying to weaponize the Justice Department against his political enemies mm -hmm. is now saying he's the victim of persecution. It's sort of what comes around goes around. Security preparations are underway for Trump's initial appearance in this Manhattan courthouse. He is expected to be fingerprinted, but it's not clear if he will have a mugshot, sources tell CNN, amid concerns it could leak in violation of state law. And sources tell CNN Trump is keeping track of who is publicly supporting him. The case, uh, based again on what's being reported, the case lacks any legal basis. It, it, it's pursuing somebody on the, it, there's nothing inherently wrong or illegal about making a hush payment. We're not dealing with a blind, a blindfolded lady justice uh, in this situation. We're dealing with a political prosecutor who has stated that he is going after President Trump. One of the big questions now is whether there will be cameras in the courtroom for this arraignment. That is ultimately up to the judge. And this judge historically has not been in favor of having cameras in his courtroom. But several media organizations, including CNN, are pushing for this, arguing that the public interest is at its zenith when we're talking about the arraignment of a former president of the United States. Short amount of time, though, is that likely? It's a, I mean, so based, it's a based on the history here with this judge, it is not likely. But he gave both sides, the prosecutors and the defense, until 1 p.m. to raise any objections. I reached out to the Trump legal team last night to see if they'd be in favor of this. They didn't respond. Okay, Paula, thank you very much. And as we wait to see if there will be cameras in the courtroom, we do know we will hear from former President Trump this week. Kristen Holmes is in West Palm Beach, Florida, outside of, or near Mar-a-Lago. I should say, Kristen, uh, former President Trump says he's leaving Mar-a-Lago at noon today. He's flying here to New York. What else do we know about what the logistics of his trip here before that arraignment tomorrow is going to look like? Yeah, Caitlin, so he's going to be staying at Trump Tower. He's going to land in LaGuardia Airport. This is all according to a source I just heard from. Uh, then he's going to overnight there 
go to that arraignment on Tuesday, and then he will be wheels up back to Florida immediately afterwards. And as you noted, he will be delivering remarks from his Mar-a-Lago home at about 8.15 Tuesday night. And those invitations have already gone out. I have talked to multiple sources who have received them. They are lawmakers, allies, club members. And I'm told by some source, a source close to Trump that this is really his opportunity to take control of the narrative after we learn what those charges are. So far, he has painted this as a political hoax and a witch hunt. It'll be interesting to see whether or not that changes once we learn what those charges are. But I am told by sources who spoke to Trump, members of his inner circle, that in between rounds of golf this weekend, Trump spent his time on the phone, texting, calling allies and touting the political positive of this indictment. He went over poll numbers that showed him leading in a hypothetical head to head with Ron DeSantis. And he talked about those fundraising numbers. We know the campaign has said that they raised five million dollars in the first 48 hours after that indictment was announced. We've also learned that Trump and his advisors are looking at ways to politically capitalize on this indictment. One of the things that they had been batting around was actually putting Trump's mugshot onto campaign merchandise like shirts and mugs as something as sort of a rallying cry for his supporters. Now, obviously, as we know, we are still uncertain whether or not he will actually get a mugshot. As we heard from Paula, authorities are worried about that potentially leaking, which would be a violation of state law, Kaylin. Yep, he's certainly fundraising off of all of this already, though. Kristen Holmes, we'll stay with you. Thanks so much. All right, let's turn now to the Justice Department's probe. This is a separate investigation into classified documents found at Mar-a-Lago. The Washington Post yesterday reporting this, that federal investigators have, quote, amassed fresh evidence pointing to possible obstruction by former President Trump. Here's what the Post is reporting, that investigators now suspect that boxes of classified documents were moved from a storage area at Mar-a-Lago. This is after, and this, this matters, the timing, after the DOJ served a subpoena to recover those documents from Florida and that Trump personally, investigators believe, examined at least some of those boxes, again, after the subpoena. Trump's team only returned some documents with classified markings. An FBI search at Mar-a-Lago would later find more than 100 classified items that were not turned over including top-secret documents. The Post reports investigators have obtained emails and text messages of a former Trump staffer, and they give a detailed understanding of what was happening during those months at Mar-a-Lago. More on that as we get it. That's good. Perspective on what's happening, especially here in New York. Senior, senior legal analyst and former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, Mr. Eli Honig, joins us now. And we should point out that he also knows Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg, personally here. So we just want to disclose that. Ellie, good morning to you. Let's start with New York indictment, what we're going to see this week. What are we learning about the charges that he might be facing? Basically, what's in the indictment, right? Sure. So we've not seen the indictment yet, but we're getting really important indicators that give us a sense of what could be in there. First of all, Don, on Friday, the judge in this case issued the first official order in the case, basically just saying Alvin Bragg, the DA, can disclose that there's an indictment. It will be unsealed on Tuesday. But this was really an important moment because we saw for the first time the case caption, people of the state of New York against Donald J. Trump, defendant, this is real. We also learned over the weekend that there will be at least one felony charge in this indictment. There better be, by the way. If this is just a bunch of misdemeanors, the DA is going to have some serious questions to answer. But here's what that could mean. It looks like some of the charges will relate to falsification of business records. The idea is they falsely logged these payments as attorney's fees, but that would just be a misdemeanor, the less serious type of charge with a one-year maximum. The dividing line between a misdemeanor and a felony, by the way, is one year. If it's one year or less, it's a misdemeanor as the max. And if it's above one year, then it's a felony. 
how could they make this a felony if they can tie those business records to some other crime, to some second crime. And the theory here is that second crime could be a campaign finance violation. If prosecutors charge and prove that, it's a class E felony, the lowest level of felony in New York state, which has a maximum of four years. And finally, Don, we know from our reporting from John Miller and others here that the indictment is expected to have 34 counts. That's a lot, but each individual entry in the business records could be its own count. You've heard a lot of the Trump folks out this weekend, the attorneys saying that they're going to fight this, they're going to seek to dismiss this. What kind of legal tactics will they use yeah, to do that? They're not playing this one very close to the vest. They spent a lot of the weekend talking to Dan Abash and others about their strategy. They are going to argue that legally, we're in state court here, New York state court. You cannot charge a violation of a federal election law. This is a presidential election under state law. And if they do that, by the way, they could knock out this because that other crime is the federal election violation, leaving them with only misdemeanors. So that's going to be a really important argument. We also know from listening to Trump's lawyers this weekend, they're going to argue there was no intent to defraud here, meaning in most business records cases, somebody takes a record, falsifies it, gives it to somebody else in order to steal money. That's not the case here. It's a little different scenario. They're going to argue that as well. Trump's team is also going to argue statute of limitations, meaning you typically have five years from the time a felony is committed to charge it, two years for a misdemeanor. Now, we're beyond both of those time periods. However, they are going to be rescued here because there's a, prosecutors are going to be rescued because there's a New York law that says you can pause that time period when someone's living continuously out of state. Trump has lived in the White House and Mar-a-Lago. And then finally, I am certain that Trump's team, and they've more than signaled this, is going to argue selective prosecution. They're going to say he's been singled out for political purposes. That's a really difficult argument to succeed And they're on. using their John Edwards argument, right? In yes. In this case, right? Yes. What about the judge? Because Trump has talked about the judge. What about the judge in this case? What yes. do we know? So the judge here, Juan Rashawn, by the way, let me just point out, this is called New York's Supreme Court. A little bit confusing. That's what they call the trial level court here in New York. The judge is a former prosecutor. He was with the DA's office, same office that's prosecuting this case, and the AG's office. Let me say, nothing unusual or inappropriate about that. Many judges are former prosecutors. He He's been on the bench since 2006, best known before this because he presided over the case against Alan Weisselberg, who pled guilty, and the trial of the Trump organization. Trump's lawyers, by the way, may object to this because the way this judge got put on this case is prosecutors said it's related to these cases, so he should get it as opposed to just going to the wheel for random assignment. Watch for Trump's lawyers to challenge that and say this should not be related to that. We should get a randomly assigned judge. And finally, Don, the judge has to make his first really big decision probably today about whether he'll allow cameras in the oh courtroom boy. for tomorrow's proceeding. We at CNN are part of a group of media outlets that have asked the judge, let us see it. Open up the courtroom. It's a public proceeding. Let the cameras in. He'll have to decide that soon. Do you think that'll happen? You know, he has a history of not allowing cameras in, but given the level of public interest here, I don't see how he says no. I think it's, I think he, look, if I can opinionate for a second, he should let cameras in because the public interest in this is through the roof. Really? All right. Yeah. Ellie Honig, thank you very much. All right. I appreciate that. Poppy? Well, an explosion at a cafe in St. Petersburg, Russia, has killed a prominent Russian blogger, and now officials suspect that he was targeted. We'll take you live to Moscow. We're also tracking other important news here in the United States this morning. Communities across the South and Midwest are now facing a massive cleanup after tornadoes ripped through the region. We'll take you live to the ground in Arkansas when we're, when we're back. More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
This morning, there's a new risk for the global economy as OPEC Plus, the group of the world's largest oil producing nations, including Saudi Arabia, Russia and Iraq, have announced a surprise production cut of more than a million barrels a day. That move is set to begin in May. It has sent oil prices soaring to $86 a barrel, about $10 higher than they were. That could mean higher gas prices, and it could also hurt efforts here in the U.S. and abroad to curb inflation. CNN's Jeremy Diamond joins us now live from the White House. Jeremy, I imagine the White House was not too pleased when this was announced by OPEC. Uh, No, certainly not, Caitlin. And they do appear to be surprised, just like the rest of us who are learning about this surprise cut that didn't come at one of those uh, quarterly uh, OPEC meetings, but instead uh, simply announced by uh, the OPEC Plus uh, group. And keep in mind the reason why is that cutting oil production leads to higher oil prices, which could lead to higher gas prices here in the United States. And of course, prolonging uh, this lingering inflation that President Biden has been dealing with and the country has been dealing with. Uh, This uh, production cut is expected to go into play in May, could last until the end of the year. Uh, And Saudi Arabia is billing this as a precautionary move to try and stabilize oil markets. But that's not how the White House sees this. And this is a statement from the National Security Council spokesperson who says, quote, we don't think cuts are advisable at this moment, given market uncertainty. And we've made that clear. We will continue to work with all producers and consumers to ensure energy markets support economic growth and lower prices for American consumers. Now, you'll recall that this follows a similar cut that OPEC did back in October of 2 million barrels per day at the White House. At the time, the White House reacted quite angrily with President Biden vowing that there would be consequences for Saudi Arabia doing this and and the OPEC group doing this, uh, saying that it was intended to try and mitigate uh, the economic consequences that Russia was facing as a result of its war in Ukraine. And this comes at a critical time. We've seen gas prices already begin to tick up up over the last month by about 10 cents per gallon. We're currently sitting at about 351 uh, per gallon. Uh, a year ago, that was 420 per gallon, though. So down, we will see exactly what the effect will be on gas prices. It's hard to predict, but for now, at least, we're already seeing those crude oil prices beginning to surge as a reaction to this decision. Caitlin? Yeah, not something the U.S. wanted to see. Jeremy, thank you so much. All right, Jeremy. All right. This morning, a tornado watch has been issued for portions of southern Mississippi, southern Alabama and the Florida Panhandle. This comes after a severe tornado outbreak killed at least 32 people across the south and the Midwest. Watch. More than 50 tornadoes reportedly ripped through at least seven states, crushing homes, tearing roofs off buildings, and tossing around vehicles. Our Derek Van Dam is live in Arkansas this morning with more. You had five deaths so far reported in Arkansas from these storms. What areas were the hardest hit? Yeah, Poppy, you know, so much heartache this morning waking up across America and we're in one of those areas uh, where unfortunately a woman lost her life in the home, what used to be a home directly behind me. Uh, You can see just nothing left. In fact, some of the trees completely spiraled around themselves in the distance there. You can see this vehicle Uh, Just the windows completely smashed out. Uh, The National Weather Service calling this an EF3. That's winds of 165 miles per hour. The Rolling Fork Mississippi tornado from over a week ago was 190 miles per hour. So uh, comparable. But when you talk about 
uh, the number of fatalities that have occurred so far this year in 2023. We've doubled, uh, more than doubled what took place last year, so, and we are only entering the peak of the season. I want you to listen to Jessie Wilson. She rode out this tornado as it ripped through her home. I want you to hear her harrowing account of what happened to her neighbors. She was looking around, she was looking around, and then all of a sudden she said, where's my mother? She said, where's my mother? She said, I can't find my mama. She started calling mama, mama, and she started calling her name. And when they found her up under that board, she was smashed. She was dead. It was just horrible. Her daughter just started screaming and hollering. It was horrible. It was horrible. Where's her house? There's no house. Everything was just gone. It is so sad that that woman lost her life behind her. We were happy that uh, Jesse is alive and well to tell that story. Uh, you know, it is so important to pay attention to meteorologists as they warn these oncoming tornadoes because right where I stand and to the north as we head into the Midwest, another round of severe weather possible tomorrow. Uh, we're going to keep a very close eye to the sky. Yeah. Uh, Poppy, Don, Phelan. Derek, thank you very much for that reporting from Arkansas. Don. We're going to turn now to another train derailment because crews in western Montana are racing to clean up after a freight train derail, sending at least 25 cars off the track. Fire officials say it happened yesterday morning. Train cars tumbled down a hill and into a river there. Officials say all the cars that reached the water were either empty or carrying Coors Light and Blue Moon. Investigators say there is no current threat to the public and that they're looking into what caused that derailment those pictures. The indictment, yeah, amazing, right? The indictment of pre former President Trump has already brought in millions to his re-election campaign, millions of dollars. We have new CNN reporting on how he hopes to capitalize on his legal troubles. Also, Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has spouted conspiracy theories and heckled the president at the State of the Union, got the 60 Minutes treatment last night. What she said about her past statements, we'll show you next. A suspect is in custody this morning after Sunday's deadly blast in Russia. The moment of the explosion at a St. Petersburg cafe was caught on tape, claimed the life of a prominent pro-Kremlin military blogger. Matthew Chance live for us, or seen this morning in Moscow. Matthew, good morning to you. What do we know? Uh, well, I mean, this um, uh, military blogger who was very pro-war, Vladlen Tatarsky, he's dead. Uh, there are something like 32 other people who are in hospital in St. Petersburg, the Russian city where this explosion took place. Eight of them, according to Russian health officials, are in grave condition. You can see why when you look at those video, that video of the cafe and, and its front being completely blown off by the force of the explosion. There has been an arrest already. A young woman, her name is Daria Trepova, uh, and, um, and, and she was at the uh, the event in which uh, Tartarsky was a guest speaker. And she actually handed him a gift, a small statue, a small figurine, which eyewitnesses say uh, was the source of the explosion. And that's what Russian investigators say now they're looking at most of all, um, uh, that this statue that was handed to Tartarsky uh, by this, uh, uh, this, this woman, Daria Trepova, was actually uh, uh, an explosive device and it detonated and caused uh, all this um, destruction. There's been an announcement from the Russian Anti-Terrorism Committee as well. They're the organisation that are investigating what's going on here. 
They're calling it a terrorist act, as is the Kremlin, and they're blaming the Ukrainian special services uh, for, for carrying this out, for planning it, in conjunction with agents, they say, from Alexei Navalny's anti-corruption campaign. So that's uh, what the official line is at the moment. This was a Ukrainian special services act in conjunction with Alexei Navalny's anti-corruption campaign. The Navalny group, by the way, has categorically denied uh, any connection. All right, Matthew Chance in Moscow this morning. Thank you, Matthew. Also back here in the U.S., in just a few hours, former President Trump is expected to leave Mar-a-Lago. You can see a live look at his plane there. He's going to fly then to New York, where he is going to be arraigned tomorrow. We are learning this morning that the former president is expected to spend the night at Trump Tower and then return straight to Florida after his appearance. That is where he's going to be speaking tomorrow night. Right now, he is facing what we believe are about 30 counts related to the business to business fraud in this historic indictment by a Manhattan grand jury. We're still waiting on it to be in, unsealed. But we should note that his indictment is the first of a current or former president in U.S. history. It stems from that alleged 2016 hush money payment covering up cover up involving the adult film star Stormy Daniels. And it appears that Trump is preparing to capitalize politically on this, with sources telling CNN that as he was playing golf over the weekend, he was also strategizing with his allies about how to use this to his advantage. It's certainly working when it comes to fundraising. His reelection campaign says they've already raised more than $5 million since news of the indictment came down Thursday night. Trump is expected to give a speech at Mar-a-Lago tomorrow night. So for perspective on all of this, I want to bring in the editor-in-chief of Semaphore, Ben Smith. I think Peter Baker has it right in the way he's talking about how Trump is flourishing. This morning on the front page of the New York Times, he says the ex-president is at home in the indictment's glare. You know, this has always been to some degree the core of Trump's appeal that the establishment hates him, that they're out to get him, that he sort of, you know, that he's transgressive and stands for people who feel really alienated from the establishment. And so, yeah, I mean, I think this is some ways back to basics, back to him coming down the golden staircase and saying things that are incredibly offensive. I mean, look what he's fundraised. Yeah, I mean, I, so I, and I think, it's, you know, I do think there's a second question of, is there anybody who says, now I like him more? I don't know. But in terms of just keeping the faith of the people who really, you know, fell in love with him in the first place, who are already on all his email lists and clicking to whatever he's asking them to click for to give him money. I mean, it's obvious that's obviously working. And it also just lets him totally blot out the sun in terms of the Republican primary. There are these other Republicans whose names everyone has now forgotten running for president while Donald Trump just absolutely dominates the conversation, yeah. which is where he likes to and be. And if they're speaking, they're speaking about Trump right now, DeSantis and everyone. And it shouldn't be a surprise that people are clicking, especially his hardcore supporters. They, that's what they do, the small donations, small donations, which adds up to a whole Four million lot of bucks in 24 yeah. hours yeah. after the indictment. Yeah. So can I ask you about this? Because uh, what's going to happen tomorrow? Because we know the reporting is expedited arraignment, um, that he probably won't be in a holding cell. It was part of my reporting from last week. Definitely fingerprinting. But then mugshot part is up in the air. His, there's a reporting that, that Trump's advisors thought that putting his mugshot on T-shirts and merchandise, they were concerned about that. Not sure about what happens with the mugshot. But this all leads to the spectacle. Is he going to want that in order to continue to raise money, in order to continue to have people, you know, I love you, just to drum things up? What do you think of the spectacle of all of this? I mean, you've got to assume he's kind of staring at the mirror, practicing exactly which, you know, kind of eye contact he's going to make for the mugshot. Yeah. I mean, that's very much his. Do you think he'll do that because, you know, he's going to do something at Trump Tower scheduled for Tuesday night after the arraignment? Do you think, Mar-a-Lago, excuse me, after the arraignment, do you think that he's going to make a spectacle at the courthouse? 
You know, I, I don't. I don't know, and I think that I think that is a really good question. I mean, it sounds like he wants to pick his place and time to do it. Wants to look like the president, not look like a felon. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and you know, and, and I do think, the, you know, the way the the New York justice system works, he'll he'll have a lot of control over, as he often does, over his appearance, over the situation. I think he'll make the most of that. We talked about the 60 Minutes interview uh, last night that Leslie Stahl did with Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, I, I, I think we have a clip. Let's play it for people who didn't see the whole thing. Are you saying that you don't stand by what's on your social media? Well, of course I stand for what's on my social media, but at times not. you're not always in control. We have all kinds of people that work on our social media. Did you apologize for your position on Parkland, Florida? What was my position on Parkland, Florida? That it was a false flag? I don't know if you actually have my position. No, I never said Parkland was a false flag. No, I've never said that. We fact-checked before I got to this interview. Have you fact-checked all my statements from kindergarten through 12th grade and in college? The Democrats are a party of pedophiles. I would definitely say so. They support grooming children. They are not pedophiles. Why would you say that? Democrats, Democrats support, even Joe Biden, the president himself, supports children being sexualized and having transgender surgeries. Sexualizing children is what pedophiles do to children. Wow. Okay. She is uh, someone who, in just her second uh, term in Congress, has got a lot of power, a lot more power than she had before, thanks to Kevin McCarthy fundraises a lot of money. So, yes, there are critics who are saying, why did 60 Minutes give for that platform? I think Leslie Stahl did a good job in that interview, and I just wonder what you took away from it. Yes, I mean, as a fellow Leslie Stahl fan, yeah, I can't fault them. I mean, 60 Minutes has interviewed, you know, rapists and hitmen and all sorts of people, you know, who are, who are in the news. I mean, I think that one of the most interesting things happening here is that Marjorie Taylor Greene, who obviously, as you say, is a significant figure, whatever you think of her, has a lot of power in Washington, right. is, um, you know, has made a decision to attempt to kind of get to a more mainstream place by doing things like 60 Minutes. We have a big story, Kadia Gobaz, coming out this morning in Semaphore about really about how this is part of her media strategy mm. to embrace the media. She criticizes Ron DeSantis for not talking to the media enough. And yet, at the same time, as she's trying to become more mainstream, she, she's still calling Democrats pedophiles. Right. And, she's, and, and, she, and I don't know if you can do both of those things at the same time. She is trying to sort of say, look, this is the Republican Party now, sort of take us or leave us, and you have to deal with us on our terms. But she, but she is also walking away from some of the crazier some stuff she it. said. Some of it. And saying she was misled, saying she was like a normal American. It's basically true. A normal American who was reading all sorts of nonsense on Facebook and believing a lot of it. I also found it really interesting that she told Leslie Stahl that the reason she got in and ran and left the construction business, et cetera, is because of her fellow Republicans, not because of Democrats. Yeah, I mean, she, you know, I think she really does embody this kind of new Trump movement in the party, whether it totally takes over the party or not is an open question. But I think the idea, which was a bit of always a bit of a fantasy that journalists, that Democrats just sort of can ignore that wing of the Republican Party is totally yeah. over. And the 60 Minutes interview sort of codifies that yeah. in a certain way. And just to be clear, you're not putting her in that group with, when you're talking about who else 60 Minutes is interviewed. Oh, no, I'm saying... I just know how people yes, respond to I'm, that, thank, so I just thank, want to say... Thanks for letting me <laughs> clean that up, Caitlin. But, no, I'm just saying they've interviewed people far more controversial right. and than Marjorie Taylor And Poppy's is her prominence in the, in the Republican Party. But that party. is yeah. a constant struggle that we have been dealing with since Trump or Trumpism is who do you give a platform to? Who's legitimate and who's not in this, especially when you have election deniers and people who are just 
you know, making things up as they go along with no, not based in fact, do you actually put them on traditional media to elevate them? That is a struggle that, you know, that we all face. So I can understand why. You know, yeah, and you have to be fast on your feet as a journalist, yeah. the, way, the way Leslie Stahl yeah. is. Yeah. Just as interesting why she did it as why they did it, right. to your point. Uh, ben Smith, thanks for being at the table. Thank with you. Us. A hospital that cannot deliver babies. Why a facility in Idaho is joining a concerning, growing list of these hospitals that are closing their maternity wards. We'll talk about that next. Welcome back to CNN This Morning, everyone. A hospital in Emmett, Idaho, says it will no longer be offering labor and delivery services starting June 1st. Valor Health says the decision is due to staffing and financial challenges. This comes after another Idaho hospital announced that it would close its labor and delivery department just last month. CNN's senior medical correspondent is Elizabeth Cohen, and she joins us now. Elizabeth, good morning to you. Two hospitals shutting down the services for mothers and babies. What on earth is happening here? Don, it's really a problem. We've spoken with many hospitals that are shutting down their labor and delivery services, and it comes down to the two things that you mentioned, not enough staff, not enough money. Let's take a look at a statement from Valor Health, which uh, you just talked about in Idaho. This decision was made in response to continued staffing and financial challenges that Valor Health is facing due to various factors, including COVID-19 impacts, inflation, staff shortages, mm. and decreasing reimbursements. Now, I want to zero in on that last one there. Births do not pay well. If you've got a bed in a hospital, you are better off giving it to a patient who needs bypass surgery, financially speaking, fa uh, bypass surgery, or someone who needs an artificial hip. Births don't pay well, especially because nearly half of all births in the U.S. are paid for by Medicaid. Medicaid only pays about $6,500 for a birth, whereas employer-sponsored insurance pays about 15000 In the past 12 months, these are all the places we found on that have shut down either their labor and delivery or their entire hospital. That's a lot of places just in the past 12 months, and we probably don't even have all of them. Don, Poppy? Yeah, it's a scary thought, Elizabeth. Thank you very much for that reporting. Uh, next, we have new reporting from Rajon Biskupic that goes into former President Trump's relationship with the Supreme Court. At the moment, some of the justices thought the former president was, quote, setting them up. Next. Welcome back. As former President Trump prepares to face criminal charges tomorrow here in New York, we're getting some new insight into the challenges the judiciary faced during his presidency. Over the course of his term, the Supreme Court navigated unprecedented politicization and polarization, and it was ultimately transformed by him. With us now on this new reporting is our uh, Supreme Court uh, CNN senior analyst, Joe Muskupic, also the author of a fantastic new book, The Nine Black Robes, Inside the Supreme Court's Drive to the Right, and its historic consequences, which is out tomorrow. And it's such a great read and it has rave reviews. And it's just so perfect to talk about this part of your reporting from the book, Joan, in this moment as Trump literally prepares to go before a judge in court. You start your piece this morning on CNN this way, quote, some Supreme Court justices thought Donald Trump was setting them up. Tell us more. Sure. This was back in October of 2018, after the very contentious uh, Senate confirmation hearings for Brett Kavanaugh. 
President Trump wanted all the justices to come over to the White House for a celebra celebration of the Kavanaugh confirmation. Now, in the past, when presidents had invited uh, the justices over, they resisted going because they didn't like the optics of, you know, a political event and breaching the separation of powers. But uh, the, some of the justices encouraged the chief Chief Justice John Roberts, to check with the White House Counsel's Office for what kind of ceremony it would be. And they were persuaded that it would be a reserved, you know, fitting session for them to attend. So they all go over there, and it opens with uh, President Trump first announcing all of their names and bragging that he was able to draw all of them to the event. And then he goes on and offers that public apology to Brett Kavanaugh. You know, so he, a very political moment. They all just sat there stone-faced. Right. They later— later confided that they regretted going, and only uh, uh, Justice Thomas was noticeably enthusiastic, and he was the only justice who then went uh, two years later when President Trump had a celebration for Amy Coney Barrett. That's right. That's right. You know, looking at what President Trump said over the weekend about the judge that he will be before in Manhattan tomorrow and right. uh, criticizing him publicly, as he has done to many judges— it's, it's notable to look in your book where you write, Trump treated the judiciary as if it were his to command from his early weeks in office to his final weeks after he lost the 2020 election. And that is where he and the chief justice, John Roberts, really butted heads. Yeah, Poppy, you probably remember it was really an unprecedented clash uh, a, a few months, uh, actually a few weeks only after the Brett Kavanaugh hearing when uh, President Trump uh, was complaining about a judge who ruled against him in an asylum case, and he referred to the judge as an Obama judge to, you know, deride him. And that was the only time the chief justice decided to say something public. And he issued that statement that said, we have no Obama judges, we have no Trump judges, we don't have Bush or Clinton judges, we just have these neutral judges. And Trump then fires back. But it was just so... I thought it was so symbolic of exactly what finally pushed Chief Justice John Roberts over the edge to say, I have to speak out against him. Because the point was, and as we see right now with these proceedings that are going to be held tomorrow, Poppy, yeah. Donald Trump is always trying to undermine judges who will be handling cases and the judiciary more broadly. Yeah. And we'll see if Trump's legal team is going to ask for a change of judges. Uh, they wouldn't answer that question over the weekend. So we'll, we'll see what they have to say, given what their client has said about this judge, Joan. Thanks very much. Congrats on the book. Again, it's out tomorrow. Thanks, Poppy. And go Tigers! The LSU women's basketball team, of course, uh, has won the NCAA uh, championship. We're live with the highlights for you. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Angel Reese with four to shoot. Poole going for the dagger. You bet! LSU has captured its very first national championship. An incredible game last night. She's there uh, pointing to her oh, ring finger. You? I know, I know. It was so cute. Such a great game. I mean, like amazing competitive spirit there we were watching. Don, the LSU Tigers, if you did not see, put on a show for the ages. They ran past Iowa to win their first national championship for the women's team in school history. Coy Wire is live in Houston with this morning's Bleacher Report. Coy, I mean, it was an awesome game just to see these athletes 
Um, going back and forth, obviously seeing Iowa's Caitlin, she's amazing in her game, but also just watching them go back and forth. Absolutely. It's been so exciting. The games have, have been breaking viewership records as well. I am shocked Don Lemon is not wearing purple and gold today. His LSU Tigers led by Hall of Fame coach uh, with players full of oh. confidence and swagger outshining Iowa in historic fashion. <laughs> Speaking of fashion, would you rock this? Don yes. Lemon, Coach Kim Mulkey, trendsetter, Wait, Tiger Whisperer, leading with a palpable passion, taking on Iowa and National Player of the Year, Caitlin Clark, the generational talent was once again lights out hitting threes from way downtown dropping a game high 30 points eight three-pointers setting a new record for most points in any ncaa tourney now lsu's total team effort just too much how about the buzzer beater three before halftime unexpected hero jasmine carson coming off the bench to score a team high 22 points when she hadn't scored a single point in their previous three games the bayou Bengals scoring a championship game record 102 points lsu star sophomore angel reese rallying with a record 34th double double and coach Kim Mulkey, Louisiana native, former Olympic gold medalist player, becomes the first women's coach to win two different schools a national title. Now, all eyes will shift right here to this court. Don and Kaylin, the men's title game tonight. San Diego State, they're coming off an iconic March Madness moment. Lamont Butler's game-winning buzzer beater sending the Aztecs to their first ever championship game. Coach Brian Dutcher's building something special in San Diego, UConn are conquerors, winning by an average of 20 points per game this tournament, led by one of the most fiery leaders you'll meet, Coach Dan Hurley. I caught up with both coaches in the locker room yesterday, and I found out that both are superstitious. Coach Hurley has no shame over his lucky, fire-breathing dragon underoos, and he says he's not changing anything now. Listen. <laughs> I would be a complete idiot if at this point, uh, I mean, and I don't know if you know this, but uh, it's been the same suit. It's been the same dress shirt. My guy, Chris Mastrangelo, has, uh, you know, has hit the dry cleaner. Uh, you know, so it's the same socks. Obviously, the Dragons have gotten the most attention. Same shoes. How long have you been wearing them? They've been through uh, two Gatorade baths, two cutting down of nets, uh, three cutting down of nets. You know, regular season title, conference tournament title. South regional title, same shoes, and they're wet, but I'm still wearing them. Both coaches are so fun, so motivational. It's easy to see why their players love them. March Madness has turned into amazing April. Can't wait to see this place rocking <laughs> Amazing April. I mean, oh. I love it. With all of the unpredictability and all the upsets, I can't blame them for wearing the same shoes, same socks, same shirt. Coy Wire, I know hopefully you'll be changing your outfit. We'll see what happens tonight. Thank you. Thanks, Coy. <laughs> And CNN This Morning continues right now. Donald Trump heads to New York to prepare for a moment we've never seen before in U.S. history. We will take the indictment, we will dissect it, the team will look at every potential issue that we will be able to challenge, and we will challenge it. This is a huge security concern and a huge security effort. No matter what your status is in the United States of America, you're not above the law. No person should be targeted by the law either. At least 32 are dead after a series of tornadoes hammered the South and Midwest. An EF3 tornado is winds of 136 to 165 miles per hour. The warnings that came from meteorologists certainly saved lives. My family couldn't get in contact with me. The cell towers were down. Everybody was scared. My sister thought I was dead. 
Senator John Fetterman is opening up about his battle with clinical depression. I stopped engaging some of the most things that I love in my life. We need more leaders that are willing to speak honestly about the challenges they're facing. Secretary of State Antony Blinken urged Russia to immediately release not just Evan Gershkovich, but also Paul Whelan. The last time the Kremlin held a U.S. journalist on spy charges was during the Cold War. And also an explosion in a cafe in downtown St. Petersburg, Russia. This explosion killed one of Russia's most prominent pro-war military bloggers, Vlad Lentatarsky. Pull-up jump shot. Good, good, good. It's been an incredible Final Four, and it is living up to all of the hype. LSU has captured its very first national championship. I'm so happy for everybody back home in Louisiana. Wow, an amazing, an amazing win. And here we are, though, at this very historic moment in U.S. history, just hours from now. The former president, Donald Trump, set to return to New York City as he prepares to turn himself in tomorrow to face criminal charges. Live look right there. The plane, Trump plane in West Palm Beach, Florida. Trump says that he is planning to leave around noon and then arrive here in New York City around 3 o'clock this afternoon. Sources telling CNN that Trump was surprisingly calm over the weekend despite the initial shock of the indictment. We're told that he played golf and he chatted about how he could use the criminal charges to boost his presidential campaign. The Secret Service has been helping to coordinate security at the courthouse in Manhattan. Sources tell CNN it isn't certain if Trump will have his mugshot taken because his appearance is widely known and there is concern it might leak. We're not expecting Trump to be handcuffed because he'll be surrounded by federal agents. So as we wait to see what that actually looks like in real time, I want to bring in CNN senior legal affairs correspondent Paula Reed and our chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst John Miller here. Good morning to both of you. John, you know, I was watching Trump's attorney yesterday on the Sunday shows. They still seem to not know exactly what tomorrow is going to look like. They said a lot of that still remains. It's up in the air, basically. Well, I think they've laid out the choreography of tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um the big thing for them tomorrow is it will be their first detailed look uh, when the indictment is unsealed um, at exactly what the district attorney is alleging and exactly what the district attorney is saying he has. Yeah. yeah. So they don't know because, again, it, it is unsealed. They don't know what the charges are, right? Can, I, I want to play something, Paula. This is um, Donald Trump's attorney, Joe Tacopina, what he said on CNN State of the Union yesterday. Watch this. We will take the indictment. We will dissect it. Um, the team will look at every every um, potential issue that we, we will be able to challenge, and we will challenge. And, of course, I very much anticipate a motion to dismiss coming because there's no law that fits this. Motion to dismiss and other challenges. Well, what's interesting about that is Joe, like the rest of us, has not actually seen the yeah. indictment. Right. So it's expected that they will file a motion to dismiss. That's not surprising at all. But they have to see the case first to decide how exactly they're going to, quote unquote, attack this. Look, if this is based on any kind of novel legal theory, you can absolutely expect legal challenges there. There are other moves that they might have to make to preserve their eventual opportunities for appeal. Like, for example, Joe, I believe, has said that they're not even thinking about a change in venue right now, but they may need to actually file a motion just to preserve their options later on. So until actually see the charges, he can't really plot a, a course of attack, but he's clear he's going to attack it. 
Hmm. Walk us through, John, what we're going to see tomorrow. We, we talked last week about the security preps here in New York City because they don't know. No one knows, I suppose, other than Trump, maybe his team, what he's going to do, if he's going to stop, if he's going to talk when he arrives in New York tonight, if he's going to do that tomorrow outside the courthouse. How do you get the tens of thousands of officers ready for the unknown? So here's what we know. He'll arrive sometime today, uh, late in the day, he'll go to Trump Tower. Um, they will put in a very well-worn um, and experienced Trump Tower security plan uh, for his stay there overnight. And in the morning, he'll go to the courthouse. Now, that's where he's going to come in to the district attorney's office, be taken into custody um, with his Secret Service detail in tow. He will be booked, so he'll be fingerprinted. He'll get a NICID number, which is the New York State mm -hmm. tracker that shows You've been arrested and charged with a felony. Um, he will be taken through a back route internally through the building to the courtroom where a judge will be uh, ready to arraign him. And at that time, as Paula would agree, they will enter a plea of not guilty, reserve all rights to challenge it on all levels. But here for the first time, that, uh, the details of that indictment, because they'll be handed that piece of paper when it's unsealed. Typically, in a case like this, they say, does the def it's, it's a legal requirement. Does the defendant waive the reading of the indictment in court? I'm assuming with as many counts as there is, that's a lengthy document. Uh, everybody usually waives it, especially because they have it already. And then he will leave the way he came, go straight to the airport, straight back to Mar-a-Lago. But that's the opening of the next chapter, which is when does he fire back and how? Mm -hmm. How does he fight this? And, and as you just intimated, how does he use this? Yeah, well, and he's already, he's already fighting back. I mean, he's already trashing the judge which he's going to appear before tomorrow, which is remarkable in and of itself. That's poor salesmanship, at least. <laughs> but not surprising for Trump. I mean, he often no, does right. this. I was struck by what Lanny Davis, Michael Cohen's attorney, said yesterday to Dana Bash, which is that they believe the payment to Karen McDougal, who also says that she had an affair with Trump, may be part of this case. Well, it's certainly possible. Based on our reporting, we know that investigators have asked about that $150,000 hush money payment to Karen McDougal. What we don't know, though, is whether those questions were to establish a pattern of other hush money payments or if they're looking specifically at other crimes that could have been committed in the context of that specific payment. So I see where Lanny could get that, but our reporting is not clear that that's definitely something that's under criminal investigation. Just quickly, where are we on cameras in the courtroom? Uh, I'm so glad you asked, Don. Uh, we don't know yet, right now, until 1 p.m., the district attorney or Trump lawyers, they can file any objections to the judge that they have for potentially having cameras in the courtroom. CNN is one of the media organizations that is pushing for this, arguing that there is no more important public interest than the arraignment of a former president of the United States. But this judge does not tend to be in favor of cameras. They want to cut down on the circus, so we don't know. We do. We're just but, asking for uh, one or two cameras, one or two audio devices. Yeah. It's not much, Don. Not it's much, a small request. I actually argue that having cameras in the courtroom does cut down on the circus. A, it means far fewer reporters have to be there because you can watch it on the feed and report it the same way. More importantly, though, uh, there's a process in the courtroom as opposed to the scrum on the courtroom steps or whatever happens later at Mar-a-Lago. And it's a civics lesson for the public to watch that process where the judge is in control and not the circus, which is usually outside. Really good point. Good point.
Paula, thank, thank you. you. Great reporting, John. You as well. Thanks, Thanks very, very much. Uh, this morning, parts of the south and the Midwest are bracing for another round of severe storms. Those are some of the same areas where more than 50 tornadoes were reported Friday. The death toll from this storm has now risen to 32 people. In Arkansas alone, at least five people have died. In Little Rock, employees and customers at a restaurant they were forced to hunker down in the kitchen as the storm and the tornado just tore through. Joining us now is a managing partner of that restaurant, Stephanie Carruthers. Stephanie, thank you for being here. Terrifying, right? I bet doesn't begin to describe what you guys went through. Did you know it, that you're really... Go ahead. It really, it really was. It really was really, really scary for a while, yes. One of the things we talk about a lot uh, is it often just you have almost no warning or very little warning, especially when these hit at night. Did you have any idea that you guys were in the path even? Uh, we did. You know, there were reports that, you know, a storm system was, you know, brewing uh, and that we were going to have bad weather on uh, on Friday. And so we, you know, everybody's watching their, watching the news reports, but you kind of go about your day. We're used to these kinds of things in the South. We're, you know, we, we call ourselves Tornado Alley. So, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're aware, but you really kind of just go about your day and think, oh, it's another tornado watch, another tornado warning. And until we got the warnings on our phones, um, and then at that point, I was like, maybe we should, maybe we should turn the TV on in the restaurant and see what's what's really happening. And, you know, then it became you know, really obvious when they're showing the, you know, the rotation uh, with the radar and it was like, wow. And they're tracking the storm literally by building landmarks. So when we see, you know, I saw places that were so close to us, you know, literal street names or, you know, building landmarks. I was like, wow, we need to. So then of course you, you go outside and look around, <laughs> but uh, that's what we do. Um, and it was, it was eerie. Um, and so that's, it's like, this is, this is serious. We need to take this very seriously and, and, and be prepared. So we, the warnings that we received were, were very good. Yeah. Stephanie, I know exactly that feeling that you're talking about. I'm from Alabama and it's when you go outside Uh. and you can just feel that it is different in the environment. You can see the sky is a weird color. It's that weird, almost chilling wind. Um, what is the damage exactly. looking like? We're looking at these pictures. It looks, it looks like you got hit, uh, pretty badly. Uh, we did the damage around our, uh, block is, uh, certainly not as devastating as some areas West of us. The, the landscape is, is forever changed as, as you know, being from Alabama. Uh, but it is a very densely populated area. It's, you know, very large apartment complexes, so many homes. Our building, we're not allowed to go in our building right now. Um, I know they're working to get, you know, power restored around us. You know, some buildings I'm sure will have to be taken down, you know, right around us. Uh, The interior of our restaurant is not um, damaged, but it's, uh, you know, it's just the, the exterior. Our main building has a glass atrium. Uh, so that is uh, the biggest concern uh, at this point so that everyone is, can safely enter the building. Yeah, and we know how long it takes to, to put, fix yeah. that and that devastation. Stephanie, we're thinking of all of y'all. Uh, glad you're safe. And uh, keep us updated on, on how the rebuilding goes because we know how long, how long that takes. And we appreciate you joining us this morning. 
Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Stephanie. Be well. The whole thing that's over in like a minute or less. You know how quickly that goes. I know. And then, but it takes years to rebuild. And then some things, obviously, lives and mementos that you can never get back in a minute or so. Crazy. I'm glad that she's okay. We'll keep checking on that. In the meantime, oil prices spiking overnight after Saudi Arabia, Russia, and their oil-producing allies made a surprise move to cut production. The White House is blasting the announcement by OPEC+. Plus. It's raising fears that gas prices could jump. Let's bring in CNN White House correspondent Jeremy Diamond. Good morning, Jeremy Diamond. How are officials responding to the move? Yeah, good morning, Don. They are certainly not pleased with this move by OPEC+. And that's because cutting oil production means higher oil prices, which we're already seeing being reflected in the market. And that could lead to higher gas prices. Gas prices, of course, have been such an important driver of inflation here in the United States. And that's where the major concerns come in from U.S. officials. Now, this uh, production cut of over a million barrels per day isn't expected to kick in until May, and it could last until the end of the year. It adds to a two million barrel per day cut that OPEC Plus announced uh, back in October. And so this is a significant concern for the White House. Saudi Arabia says that this is intended to try and stabilize oil markets, but the White House just doesn't see things that way. This is the statement from the National Security Council. They say, quote, we don't think cuts are advisable at this moment, given market uncertainty, and we've made that clear. We will continue to work with all producers and consumers to ensure energy markets support economic growth and lower prices for American consumers. Now, you'll recall that back in October when OPEC Plus announced that 2 million barrel per day cut, the White House was furious. President Biden vowed that there would be consequences for Saudi Arabia. Those consequences, though, they never really uh, became a reality. And now we come to this point where this new surprise cut is being announced, similar concerns being expressed by the White House. Now, where, how is this going to affect gas prices remains to be seen. But right now, gas prices are about $3.51 a gallon. That's about 10 cents higher than they were last month, but still down from a year ago when they were at $4.20 a gallon. But again, concerns about gas prices and also the broader inflation picture, which we know has been a top priority, a top issue here at the White House trying to combat that. Don, All right. Jeremy Diamond at the White House. Thank you very much, Jeremy. The top diplomats in the United States and Russia, Anthony Blinken and Sergey Lavrov, talking over the weekend about quite a lot. The former national security advisor, John Bolton, is here to discuss that and more next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. All right, welcome back. Secretary of State Blinken speaking to his Russian counterpart, Sergei Lavrov, over the weekend, demanding the release of the Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gerskovich. Gerskovich was arrested in Moscow last week on charges of espionage. He is currently being held at a notorious prison. That's until May 29th. At least that's what we know for now. Lavrov says that his fate, though, is up to the Russian courts, and he scolded the U.S. for, quote, politicizing the arrest. Joining us now is former Trump national security advisor and former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, John Bolton. Good morning, Ambassador, and thank you for being here. I wonder what you make of Evan Gerskovich's arrest. Well, I think this is an act of state terror by the Russians. Uh, I think they know exactly what they're doing. Uh, this is a trumped-up uh, charge of espionage, and uh, I think they're trying to set up a trade of some kind. I hope the administration doesn't fall for it. I, I think instead of, uh, of begging the Russians to let him go, if they don't uh, produce pretty quickly, uh, I would try and take more decisive action. For example, going to our NATO allies 
and saying, look, we, we ought to expel Russian ambassadors from all of our capitals, because if they've arrested the journalist from one country, they could do it from another as well. It's one more step in Russia becoming uh, completely a rogue state. Uh, and I think uh, if we don't draw a line here uh, very clearly, very quickly, it's only going to get worse. Do you think that's a step that the U.S. should take when it comes to expelling the ambassador? Absolutely. There, there is no excuse for this arrest at all. This is a total put-up job. Uh, it's, it's directed right at the administration because of the war in Ukraine. Uh, and if that's the way the Russians are going to behave here, as I say, if, if you don't challenge the behavior decisively early, it only gets worse. Yeah, where, I mean, everyone is hoping for Evans' release, obviously, and for his safety while he's there. Also this week we saw, or last week we saw General Mark Milley, of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, warning about this axis between China, Russia, and Iran and the threat that it poses not just to the United States but also uh, more broadly to the world. Do you share the same concerns that he's voicing in front of Congress? No, absolutely. I, I think this has uh, been developing for some time. I think uh, Russia's on the way to becoming very much the junior partner in a Chinese-led uh, international axis. Uh, in addition to Iran, I'd certainly add North Korea as a, as a partner country. Uh, and I think what it demonstrates is why the United States uh, has to think globally when it thinks in terms of its international strategy uh, and why it is that uh, the, the sad to say increasing calls for isolationism in the United States are badly misguided. So this is a challenge to us. Hopefully uh, our political leaders will wake the population up to it, to the, to the dangers we face really in Europe, in the Middle East, in South Asia and East Asia. Uh, and, and this should be something that people pay more attention to. The idea that uh, arose at the end of the Cold War, that we're at the end of history, that there are no more threats in the world. You'd think that would have been dispelled long ago. It hasn't, sadly. This is a good point to do it. Yeah, you're clearly referencing there the 2024 GOP field, primary field that we are seeing shape up right now. Obviously, there are so many important headlines happening around the world when it comes to what's happening in Russia and in Ukraine and with China. So much of the focus, though, this week is obviously on your former boss, who is going to be arraigned here in a New York courtroom tomorrow. But I wonder what you make of how he is benefiting politically from this, because they've already said to the Trump campaign, they claim that they've raised five million dollars pretty much since his since this word of this indictment came down last week. Right. I, I think this is uh, music to Trump's ears, but I do think that it's the outcome of the case and potentially the outcome of the other cases that's really more important, not just the indictment. And I think tomorrow at the arraignment hearing, uh, it's really a very important moment. And the question is whether the judge in the case will have control of his courtroom or whether Trump will have control of his courtroom as this plays out. A lot of people have said it'll take a year for this case to go to trial, putting it right into the thick of campaign season. I have a recommendation for the judge, actually. I think tomorrow, after Trump pleads not guilty, and they would normally come to scheduling discussions about pretrial motions and the like, I think the judge ought to say, you know, Mr. Trump, I bet you and I and District Attorney Bragg all strongly believe in that old saying, justice denied. Uh, justice delayed is justice denied. And I'm here to make sure justice is not denied to you. So we're not going to delay this case in the normal way. I'm going to put it on a rocket docket. 
uh, I'm going to set a trial date of, let's say, July the 5th this summer. I'm going to say to the defense attorneys, if you have dispositive pretrial motions uh, arguing the case should be dismissed because it's insufficient legally, because it's, uh, it's, there's prosecutorial misconduct here, it's malicious prosecution, I want all those motions, I want all those motions filed in three weeks. The, the, DA's office will have two weeks to respond. We are going to move this thing because this cloud needs to be resolved for you as a candidate and for the public. Uh, and so we're not going to have delay in justice here. Justice will not be denied. We are going to move quickly. I'd like to see the Trump team's response to that. Why? What do you think? How do you think they'd respond? Because I think the Trump team is going to say, oh, it's a, such a complicated indictment. It's going to take many, many months to analyze it and this and that. Delay benefits Trump here. That's what I say. The real test tomorrow is the opening uh, scene and whether the Trump team dominates how long this, uh, how this case proceeds or whether the judge dominates it. Well, Trump has been trashing the judge, saying that he, quote, hates him. Obviously, this is the judge uh, that oversaw the proceedings when it came to Alan Weisselberg at the Trump Organization. Do you think that there should be like a gag order in place when it comes to what we're seeing the former president, how he's weighing in on this? Right. Well, I think there are two basic arenas here. One is what actually happens in the courtroom, and I think I've just addressed how I think that ought to go. The other is what happens outside the courtroom. Uh, and it is normal in cases that draw a lot of attention that judges do impose gag orders. Uh, now, this is, this is uh, sensitive in the sense Trump is a candidate for president, and it doesn't mm -hmm. really matter much what the judge says. Trump is going to say he's being persecuted. But I do think uh, uh, that, that a defendant uh, can be restrained from attacking the judge, attacking the DA, basically trying to pollute the jury pool. That's what Trump's public strategy is, uh, to, to so rile public opinion that he can later say, you know, it's just not possible for me to obtain a fair trial. Of course, largely because of what he, he's been doing. So I think the judge can take uh, a preliminary action to try and make sure that doesn't happen. I think he probably should. Yeah. Well, I should note Trump is already arguing that. And I should also note your former colleague, Bill Barr, the former attorney general, says he believes this is a weak case when it comes to the merits of it. We'll see what the judge decides and how that proceeds tomorrow. John Bolton, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. All right. They haven't seen the indictment yet, but some Republicans are already rushing to defend the former president as he faces charges. Will it come back to haunt them? That's next. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. Republican lawmakers are lining up to defend former President Trump as he's set to be arraigned in Manhattan criminal court tomorrow. We don't know the charges yet, but we will tomorrow. If this is politically motivated, this will be a shame on, on our, our criminal justice system. It's one thing when you have a, a, a cancel culture. It's another when you have a cancel criminal justice system. Give the president some money to fight this. This is going to destroy America. Justice is not treating President Trump blindly. They're treating President Trump as somebody, I'll say it again, wanted dead or alive. It looks pretty political. So without seeing the indictment, without knowing anything behind it, the motivation was there long before the evidence was. Bragg didn't want to take the case, and then what changed? President Trump announces he's running for president, and Shazam. Shazam, joining us now, CNN political director and host of CNN Political Briefing podcast, David Chalian, and CNN senior political commentator and former senior advisor to former President Obama, David Axelrod. Good morning, guys. Hey. David. Um, so, David, this David, David to my right. <laughs> it, 
it's notable. That's what Republican lawmakers think. Asa Hutchinson, who we're going to have on uh, next hour, who's running for the GOP nomination, um, is one of the few Republicans not to jump on the bandwagon in that respect. But when you ask the voters what they think, um, a plurality actually do think that President Trump should postpone his campaign because of this. He won't. It's interesting. I don't know many front runners that say, I'm going to postpone my campaign or step down. Because you look at the voter beyond the lawmakers. Yeah, no doubt. I, I mean, um, Asa Hutchinson has called, like yes. you're saying, for uh, Trump to step to aside, step right? aside and, and leave the campaign. Obviously, uh, that that's not going to happen. I, I do think, though, looking at all the polling that's out there, you do see that the president's argument that this is a political prosecution has some resonance, whether that is just because mm -hmm. the prosecutor is indeed a, a Democrat. It's an elected position here in New York and, and has and boasted of a uh, hundred times yes. uh, uh, being able to uh, sue Donald Trump as part of his campaign. So I do think that voters say, hey, maybe there's politics at play here, but I don't think that that necessarily causes voters to yeah. say, oh, and therefore Donald Trump is not culpable here. I, I don't think that's the case. Well, I think you can hold two ideas at the same time. To your point, it, it's interesting. Before this indictment came, Mark Kelly, Democratic Senator of Arizona, was warning about the risk mm -hmm. of this. And then yesterday on the Sunday shows, we heard Democrat Joe Manchin talking about that. And then also we heard uh, Republican Senator Bill Cassidy, who, of course, voted to convict Trump in his second impeachment, also warning. So it's not just those that are always on the Trump bandwagon. No, but I think uh, that... Uh when you look at this polling, you know, among Republicans, there's an overwhelming view that this is a political prosecution. As David mentions, that doesn't mean that everybody who thinks that doesn't believe that there's also potentially something to it. But, you know, the interesting thing about this to me is everybody asks, well, do you think this will help Trump in his campaign? I actually think a lot of the motivation for his campaign is to help him against uh, these indictments. Yeah. And you can see it in play right now. You can see him. So if he were not running for president, it would be a lot harder to position these things as politically motivated uh, prosecutions. But now he can turn to his supporters and say, they're trying to silence me and they're trying to silence you. And, uh, you know, I think there's some indication in this polling that people are hearing that uh, hearing that message, certainly in his base. Can I follow up on that? Because I listen as much as I respect my, our colleagues at The New York Times. They're yeah. saying that Trump is enjoying this. Yeah, I think he... that's nuts. OK, go on. No, I think that's nuts. I, you know, look, he is going to try and turn uh, lemons into lemonade. But the idea that the guy said, you know, I got a great plan to get elected mm -hmm. president. I'm going to get indicted. And you know what? I may get indicted three, four times. Mm -hmm. And let's see how that works out. He does not want to be in a courtroom facing a judge. He's tried to avoid this. We were talking about this before. All his life, he's kept his hand to the flame and he's avoided this. And now he's facing it. And it'll be interesting to see how he reacts when he has when he's in those four walls where he can't control what's happening. And I would just add, he has some skill at making <clears throat> lemonade out of lemons, oh, right? I sure. mean, he has he has shown us time and again. So <clears throat> the ability to raise five million dollars in in 48 hours after the indictment, uh, the ability to fortify the Republican Party around him in this moment. I mean, just think for just think how much politics has changed. A frontrunner for the Republican nomination for president is indicted on criminal charges, and it's not seen as an opening for everyone else to uh, start piling on in some way. That's how much Donald Trump has uh, changed the calculation well, and how much um, 
He fortifies his own support. But on top of that, a twice impeached former president. It's a disgrace, right? One term. Can I say, you know, not only that, he's not, to your point about what this looks like and when it comes to what Republicans are saying, they're not necessarily rallying around him per se. They're just, they're not endorsing his behavior or anything like that. They're trying to thread the needle of how do you say this is a political prosecution, but also not, you know, the way DeSantis is handling it has been amazing to me. But you're right. It is closing the door for the 2024 people. And instead, they're having to talk about Trump. But also the thing I've been struck by what I wanted to ask you about is the lack of support for Alvin Bragg here. Like you don't see people coming out and saying this is a great case. This is, you know, really steady. We think this is going to get a conviction. Yeah. Well, nobody's seen the indictment yet, right? So yeah. I, there's, yeah, but we know generally what it's There's that. Like. Um, but I, I think Alvin Bragg has not launched some campaign. I think he has to be really, really wary of being a political actor in this, given the frame that Trump and his allies are building around this. Uh, but Caitlin, what you just noted about uh, Ron DeSantis is very interesting. He changed his approach to this. He he did raise the tawdry details of uh, the hush money payments yeah. and a porn star initially. And now that's gone. Now it's purely he was attacking Ron. Yeah. He was criticizing Ron. So he tried to say, hey, this might be a moment where Donald Trump is actually weak and I should try to make an attack here. And he realized that was not Boy, going I'll, to be welcome. I'll the tell you, this man, moment. this is he, one of the challenges for him is trying to thread this needle where he's courting Trump voters and trying to oppose Trump. And you can see him shifting around. And shifting around in presidential politics is never good because it suggests inauthenticity. I think this is uh, a challenge for him. But as for you really were asking me about the case, um, you know, look, I think there's a, there is this sense among a lot of people that, you know, the, the phrases novel legal theory and porn star in a sentence probably doesn't give you great confidence that this is the one that should move forward. But, you know, for all the people who say, gee, you know, why did this case go first? I mean, it's prima facie evidence that people are not coordinating. This is not a conspiracy against Donald Trump. This is an independent case. And this DA thinks he's got uh, a, a case to make. It's notable when even the Washington Post editorial board comes out and says in its first paragraph of the piece on Friday, you know, caution and concern ahead. The, but according to my sources, uh, the folks who are saying that this is a weak case and Georgia should go first, um, it's just bad thinking. The existence of an indictment in one jurisdiction is beneficial to other jurisdictions. The notion that this shouldn't be birthed for political reasons doesn't align with the justice system. We don't coordinate investigations. They can coordinate court dates because it, it is right. common for defendants to face prosecution or different indictments in different in jurisdictions, the, yeah. and they can do that. Bonnie Willis or somebody else could actually end up going first. So yeah. this one is just the one that's coming to the fore there first. There is a general it doesn't sense mean it's so that if you were Donald Trump first. and you had to choose one of these to yeah. try and paint the whole thing as sort of political, uh, this, this one probably is the one you would choose. Yeah. yeah. That's a really good point of how it goes in order. We yeah. don't know the court date. The yeah. David Challen. Thank David you both. Axelrod, thank you. See you guys. All right, the LSU women made history with their first basketball <laughs> championship. A little trash talk is overshadowing some fantastic performances. We'll talk about the reaction next. Kim Mulkey in year two has orchestrated a turnaround for the ages. LSU has kept 
Richard. It's very first. See the ball flying everywhere. I want that ball. I want it signed. A historic night for the LSU Tigers. LSU women taking down the Iowa Hawkeyes and claiming that their first national, claiming their national um, championship, their first national championship. And the Tigers did it in record-breaking fashion, scoring a whopping 102 points. That's the most points ever scored by a team in a women's championship game. So much history here. The host of Kerry Champion Show on Amazon Prime, Kerry Champion, joins us now. Kerry Champion, good morning to you. A big night for the LSU Tigers. <laughs> what are your highlights? Oh, oh my! there were too many highlights. First of all, can I just say something? Yeah. What happened yesterday, what's happened this entire tournament for the women's game has changed the way in which so many people are taking women's ball seriously. So congratulations to both ladies on both sides. The highlights were one of many. This was LSU's very first national title game, and they win. And there were so many lead changes. And I thought to myself, no, Iowa will do it. Oh, no, Kaylin will do it. Oh, no, LSU's going to—it was so exciting. I love the game. Game. It was great. But you know the story. The story is the trash talk. That's what everyone is talking about after the fact, Don. And that's so disappointing because the game was so amazing. You're, you're talking about um, Angel Reese. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. yeah. Angel Reese making, um, mocking uh, Clark w with the, this John Cena move, prompting this backlash that's on Twitter um, last night. She was asked about it after the game. Why don't you listen to her response and then we'll talk about it. All year, I was critiqued about who I was. Nobody, I don't, yeah, yeah, the narrative, I don't fit the narrative. I don't fit in the box that y'all want me to be in. I'm too hood. I'm too ghetto. Y'all told me that all year. But when other people do it, y'all don't say nothing. So this was for the girls that look like me. That's going to speak up on what they, they believe in. It's unapologetically you. So this is what she's saying. She's saying that Clark made the same gesture during the game against South Carolina on Friday. The former NFL star Emmanuel Acho weighed in, and this, I'm going to put this up. He says, if, if, if it wasn't classless when Caitlin Clark did it, don't call it classless when Angel Reese does it. Let the women compete. It's sports. So what do you say? What's your response? Well, the thing is this, and that's, he's right in the sense that the women need to be able to play the game the same way the men do in terms of getting these characters. This is good for the sport. Take it or leave it. I don't know whose side you're on, but it's good for the sport. The reason why people often say, I don't watch the women's game is because it's not exciting. I don't know the characters. There are no storylines. Here you have characters and storylines. Caitlin Clark of Iowa, as we now call her, is Little Steph. This woman can shoot from the logo, lights out. We've never seen anything like this before. She is the real deal. And there was nothing but respect for her. But Angel Reese is very right. She's saying the way in which LSU plays basketball, Don Staley of South Carolina Gamecocks talked about this as well. The way they play ball, people have now said this isn't basketball because the women are playing with more physicality. They're showing that they're just as tough. They're showing that they don't back down. And there should not be an assigned way that women should play basketball. It's good for the game. And to have people come out and criticize Angel Reese for that mocking, that's what you do. This is basketball. Win or go home. Perhaps she could have done it differently. Maybe one less gesture. Who knows? Everyone will weigh in. But I am proud of her for saying, look, I'm calling a spade a spade. I'm a big, tall black girl who made you look uncomfortable because I was doing it to a smaller white girl. And you guys have called me ghetto all year long. And that's just not true. This isn't about me. It's for every brown girl that looks like me who wants
wants to play the game and have respect. There was no love lost. Caitlin Clark said that afterwards. Yeah, and I think it is important what she pointed out, which is that Caitlin Clark did it in a game for your, prior to that. I think the one good thing is we, act, we expect both of them to return next year, and so we'll get yes. to watch both of their amazing talents because you're totally right on that, that Caitlin Clark has been amazing. Angel has been uh, – it was such a great game to watch. But can we also talk about another fun aspect of this? And this is something I've been talking about on this show for like two and a half weeks. <laughs> Forever. Which are yeah. the LSU coaches' outfits. Because every single game oh. that she shows up, she brings it. And these, <laughs> this is just a taste right now of what you're seeing. If you go Google image all of her outfits, they are incredible. <laughs> There was, there were betting odds, you're so right, there were betting odds whether Kim would wear leopard or some sort of cheetah print to the, and she, she did not disappoint. Nope. Sequenced tiger. They literally were like, what are the odds that she'll come out in some sort of print? Thank you, Kim, because she is a fashion show. I, I, I tweeted this the other day, this is really interesting. I said, how can she yell at her players in a fitted sequence tiger print outfit? How do you, how can you get the gusto to gird up enough, you know, anger because you're so restricted but Kim found it of course <laughs> congratulations to Kim for the outfit yeah with a feather boa <laughs> along the lines of the blazer it was uh -huh, awesome uh-huh 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 yeah. she's showing us how to do it lady she's saying I will not live by any rules she doesn't play by the rules she doesn't coach by the rules in a lot of ways mm -hmm. good ways and she definitely doesn't dress uh, according to said rules give that's how we feathers. do give Carrie <laughs> in Louisiana if you yeah. saw New Year's Eve I had on a sequin jacket very similar to what she's <laughs> That's, how, that's, that's Louisiana. I'm, nobody's surprised in Louisiana. We love it. We should be talking about it. It's amazing. Yeah. Okay, let's well, say you are special. We'll in see if anyone at the uh, men's game tonight <laughs> comes anywhere close to, to wearing an outfit like that. Uh, nowhere close. You're right. Louisiana set the mark, uh, and you're right. Kim is from Louisiana, so they set the mark. The men will. The men's side won't be as exciting. I will say this, uh, you know, I know you guys have to wrap soon. I'm excited about San Diego State taking on UConn. UConn is a traditional blue blood. Uh, they are favored to win. Dan Hurley is a legacy coach, comes from a legacy family. But this coach on the other side of the game, Brian Dutcher, I want to tell you guys about him briefly and why I'm rooting for SDSU. He has been an assistant for the bulk of his career, an assistant in waiting. He helped put together the Michigan Fab Five team as an assistant. He took over this program in 2017, and they are the most unlikely team to run, make Carrie. it. Yeah. We gotta oh, run. Oh, yeah. Bye. But let's Thank root you. for them, though. Yes. <laughs> okay, no likely. problem. They Thank did you. beat the Crimson Tide yeah. and knocked us out of the bracket, so we'll say that. <laughs> Carrie, you. you're great. Thank, Thank you, you so much. I like her perspective. Thank you so much. I like that what she said. This is sport. Let people, you know, we yes. trash talking I is love part of it. You know, Carrie Champion yeah. says. Thank you. Thank you. A touching tribute on one of country music's biggest nights, marking a tragedy, though, of course, in Nashville. The star who used her own experience to pay tribute to the victims of the most recent mass school shooting. Also, Senator John Fetterman opening up about his struggle with depression. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The community of sorrow over this and the 130 mass shootings in the U.S. this year alone stretches from coast to coast. The CMT Music Awards opening up with an emotional tribute last night to the three nine-year-old children and the three adults who were killed in the Covenant School shooting in Nashville, Tennessee. That was the host, Kelsey Ballerini, talking about her own experience with the shooting that happened at her high school in Knoxville to call for action. I wanted to personally stand up here and share this moment because on August 21st, 2008,
I watched Ryan McDonald, my 15-year-old classmate at Central High School, lose his life to a gun in our cafeteria. I pray deeply that the closeness and the community that we feel through the next few hours of music can soon turn into action like real action that moves us forward together to create change for the safety of our kids and our loved ones. Should note, she still says she has PTSD from that shooting at her high school. This is the first year that the CMT Awards were held in Austin, Texas. They previously have been held in Nashville, so obviously very close to home for everyone. Yeah, and again, it's young people, young people affected so often by this and calling for change like she is. Well, this morning, Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman is back home. Great news to tell you about with his family after he spent the last six weeks at Walter Reed being treated for depression. In a new interview with CBS, Fetterman says winning office was the beginning of his downward spiral. I had stopped leaving my bed. I've stopped eating, uh, dropping uh, weight. I stopped engaging some of the most things that I love in my life. Lauren Fox is following us on Capitol Hill. Lauren, um, you did that great interview with Senator Tina Smith about her struggle with depression. And now this, I loved this interview so much. I thought Jane Pauley did a remarkable job. And you really saw in him hope and sort of a renewal after such a fight. Yeah, I mean, this was such a touching and human interview as he really let viewers and the American public hear about his personal struggle with depression. He said that right after he won his election in November, what was supposed to be a really happy moment, he started to feel the spiral of depression. He said he couldn't get out of bed. He said at one point, his 14-year-old really asked him, Dad, what is wrong with you? You know, you have kids, you have a wife, you just won this big race. What is going on? And he talked about how with depression, it doesn't really make sense. It's not rational. It is something that really takes over your mind. And he was so candid. Here he is in his own words. You know, you just won the biggest you know, race in, in the country. And the whole thing about depression is, is that objectively, you may have won, but de- depression can absolutely convince you that you actually lost. And that's exactly what happened. And that was the start of a, of a, down, a downward spiral. It, it makes me sad. You know, the, the day that I go in was my son's birthday. And I hope that for the rest of his life, his birthday should be joyous. And you don't have to remember that your father was admitted. And lawmakers up here on Capitol Hill have been so supportive of Senator Fetterman receiving treatment. They say that they are excited for him to return back to Washington to get back to work. You can expect that his colleagues here are going to continue to support him as he continues to recover. It was such a brave interview for him to give and so rare to see a sitting senator open up like that. Lauren Fox, thank you very much. CNN This Morning continues right now.
right, good Monday morning, everyone. Right now, former President Trump is preparing to head to New York City shortly as he is expected to surrender tomorrow and appear in court to face criminal charges. Trump's legal team vowing to challenge every potential issue with the Manhattan District Attorney's case once the indictment is unsealed and we find out the actual charges. One of Trump's attorneys is going to join us live in just moments. There she is. We'll see her in just a moment here on CNN. Also, we've learned that Trump is planning to give a speech just hours after he is arraigned. We'll break down all of the plans for what, again, will be a historic day. And we are expecting it all to get started about four hours from now when former President Trump is set to fly here to New York to LaGuardia Airport as he is preparing to turn himself in and face those criminal charges tomorrow. You can see his plane here still in West Palm Beach. That's what he will get on in just about four hours from now before taking that flight. We're told he's expected to leave around noon. That means he would be in New York around 3 o'clock this afternoon. Sources tell CNN that at times Trump was calm over the weekend, despite, of course, his team now admitting they were shocked initially by the indictment when it came down on Thursday. Over the weekend, Trump reportedly played golf, talked to his political allies, and discussed ways to use the criminal charges to boost his 2024 presidential campaign. CNN's senior legal affairs correspondent Paula Reed is here with us now. Obviously, we've seen the way that he's been fundraising off of this. They've said they've raked in about $5 million, according to his team. Of course, we've actually seen that in an FEC report. Uh, but when it comes to what we are going to see when it comes to the legal merits in today and tomorrow, what are you hearing in the latest? So right now, there is a big push from CNN and other media organizations for transparency here. Uh, we are pushing to have this indictment unsealed today. Usually, indictments are unsealed during an initial appearance, uh, during the arraignment. So that would be tomorrow. And right now, we don't know what the actual charges are in this case. There's also a push to get cameras inside the courtroom. Historically, this judge has not been in favor of that. But we have argued, along with other media organizations, that there is no greater public interest than having transparency in a case like this. One thing I thought was interesting, though, is I reached out to the former president's legal team last night to say, hey, you guys want cameras in the courtroom, right? I didn't hear back. So I'm really curious to watch. They have until 1 p.m. today, prosecutors or defense, to launch any objections uh, with the judge that they have to cameras in the courtroom. So I'm really curious to see if anybody has any objections. John Miller said uh, moments ago on the air here, he thought it would cut down on the chaos and it was actual, it would give it more transparency and less of a circus-like atmosphere, I know. Exactly, and maybe more trust in the process, particularly when you have so many people believing in conspiracy theories. All right, Paula Reed, thank you. Shimon and I were just talking about what we're going to talk about here. So, Shimon, let's just start with that, because one of the big questions is what are the setups in right. terms of security? So when you look at the security for tomorrow, there's going to be the court system is yeah. really in charge of what's going on inside the courtroom. So it's the court officers, obviously the NYPD, a lot of their responsibility is going to fall on what's happening outside, potential protests, securing that area. And then the Secret Service. This is something obviously very new. We've never had someone under Secret Service protection have to go inside a courtroom and face charges. So the Secret Service will be there. So this all starts, Poppy, tonight. When, later this afternoon, when the former president arrives, he's going to be at the LaGuardia Airport late this afternoon. Then he goes to Trump Tower. Uh, and then, obviously, tomorrow is the big day when he's going to appear at the Manhattan DA's office and then the Manhattan Criminal Court. And then when you look at the motorcade route, we're going to go from Trump Tower all the way to the Manhattan Criminal Courthouse. It's going to probably take about 30 minutes or so. He's expected there sometime late morning, early afternoon, kind of uh, as you know, folks refer to as appointment arrest. He will be arrested. Once he walks through uh, the doors of the DA's office, 
he's going to be arrested. He's going to walk through those doors, surrender, and at that point, he's taken into custody by the district attorney's walk office. Walk through, no handcuffs, because they, they don't need them. He's right. surrounded by Secret Service, federal agents, fingerprinted like normal, maybe not a mugshot, which would be normal to have a mugshot. Right. There's a lot of concern over this mugshot of it leaking. It's, it's really against the law in New York State to release mugshots right. for someone who's arrested. So there's a lot of concern over it leaking, and there's really kind of no point in taking his mugshot. Everyone knows how he looks. Everyone knows what he looks like. Is he going to flee? I mean, obviously not. So the fingerprinted, very normal. He's going to go through the DA's office upstairs, yeah. and then the arrest process begins. They're going to do the all the reports that they need to uh, file. And then what happens is really he just he just waits and then he goes to the courtroom. And that's when we start. to But see there the are unknowns. Like, is he going to stop and address people outside of Trump Tower today? Is he going to do that tomorrow before he leaves? Is he going to do that in front of the courthouse before or after the arraignment? How do these officers prepare for the unknown? Right. That's the difficulty with the former president. You know, the Secret Service, obviously the NYPD, everyone plans for stops. Everyone plans for what happens. I mean, it's hard to tell because he always goes off script. The thing is right now, what they're really concentrating on is what happens inside the courthouse. And so we know he's going to be on the 15th floor where the courtroom is there. Right now, that floor is shut off to the public. People can't go up to that floor as they prepare because of security. And then we're going to likely see the former president escorted down the hallway for cameras to see. Normally, that shot is of someone walking in handcuffs. They're in custody. They're wearing handcuffs. In this case, obviously, the former president will not be wearing handcuffs, and then we'll escort him into the courtroom. And then the big question is, will we get to see him inside the courtroom with the cameras? With the cameras. We should know that decision Hopefully today, today. right? I mean, this judge is known for not allowing cameras in court, but right. given the gravity of this situation here, I think it's likely that we will see. He's waiting to hear from the defense attorneys and the DA on what... Uh, they want him to do. And obviously, okay. I think they will allow it. So it's we'll certainly going to be uh, an we'll interesting be 24 hours. Yeah. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. Don. Let's talk about all of that and more. The perfect person to have on now is Donald Trump's lawyer, Lena Habba. She represents the former president in several ongoing civil cases, but is not a part of his criminal defense team dealing with this indictment in New York. Lena, thank you so much. We appreciate you coming on this morning. Thank you for having me. So let's start where they left off. Does the former president... Or his legal team, do you support the transparency of having cameras in the courtroom? I think it depends. Um, I think this this whole uh, rigmarole, really, for lack of better words, has been through leaks, which I don't appreciate as an attorney. I think that transparency is very important. I'm going to leave that decision to the criminal team. But as somebody who's represented the president in court, I like transparency. Um, I think that in certain situations, it's a good thing. I do have a problem with leaking of pictures. I think that it's it, because we're in a campaign, because he's the leading GOP candidate, it, it's not going to help anything. Um, but you're, you're talking I know that, about that he'll, the possibility, be, he'll be transparent. You're talking about the possibility of a mugshot. You would prefer not to have a mugshot of the, of the former president. Is that what you're saying, Alina? The, I, I don't see a purpose in it. You know, the, the reality is, like, like the person prior mentioned, mugshots are for people so that you recognize who they are. He is the most recognized face in the world, let alone the country right now. So there's no need for that. There's no need for the theatrics, no. The, do, does the former president and do you, do the legal team, uh, do they, the unsealing of the document, do you support that? Does he support that? 
Yes, I mean, if they think it will happen no matter what, I would like to see what the basis is for this. Let's remember that the real crime here that we have is that D.A. Bragg did leak that there were 30 to 34 counts. We already know that that in itself is a felony. You are not to let that go. So uh, at this point, I mean, and, and I like everybody Alina, we in this don't country know to be the, treated the, the same no matter DJ, who We don't know if, if the D.A. leaked that information. That is speculation. Well, we don't have that information, so... Well, it's not speculation. We don't have the information. So it came from their office. So your client has attacked the judge in this case, posting online that the judge hates him, that he was handpicked by Bragg and the prosecutors, and that he railroaded and strong-armed Alan Weisselberg. Why would he do that? I think that's a fact. I think that we have a... um, many judges, frankly, and I'm, I'm before some of them, who have shown a venomous and a vitriol against President Trump that is like nothing we've ever seen in the state of New York and practicing for as many years as I have. I've never seen cases move so fast unless they're Donald Trump. I've never seen lopsided discovery issues. And I think he has a serious concern. I think that's how he feels and he has a right to voice that. It's a First Amendment right. Considering what happened with January 6th, as you know, there's a concern about unrest here. Last week, the, the former president called on mm-hmm. his supporters to protest the indictment. He raised the possibility of, quote, I'm quoting here, death and destruction over this case. Former Manhattan DA Cy Vance, who previously investigated uh, the former president, Trump, said that Trump's statements about Alvin Bragg uh, about in court could strengthen this case against him. Listen to this. I would be mindful of not committing some other criminal offense like obstruction of governmental administration, which is interfering with or uh, by by threat or otherwise the operation of government. The advice that his legal team is giving him about his rhetoric around this case? My advice to him is that he has every right that every other American has if he wants to speak out, if he wants to encourage people to protest peacefully. I think that is a right that the president has and that I have and that you have, Don. And I think that the reality of the situation is I would ask you, why is it not a problem for BLM to protest and encourage protest, but it's a problem when it's Donald Trump. I think we need to look at the double standard in this country. It is ruining this country, and I'm sure you love this country as much as I do. We need to look at injustices, the fact that he is leading in the polls, the fact that he is the first president to get indicted for something that we think will be books and records in front of a woke a, a woke DA who is literally has nine went from nine percent DUIs being missed, dismissed to over fifty percent. This is who we're dealing with. But when it's Donald Trump, he's flipping it. Alina, I have a short time with you. I, I, I would love to just stick CNN to the CNN politics or Fox. But yeah, I would love to just yeah, stick, stick to the facts in this because there's there's a lot to deal with. The there's a there are a number of legal yeah. cases against your client. So let's just stick to the facts here. Another lawyer for Trump, sure, Joe Tacopina, said that he'd be filing a motion to dismiss, but he's also preparing to challenge every potential issue. Is this strategy, you think, that throwing everything against the wall, do you think that is what is going on just to see what sticks here? What is happening? No, I think it's the same thing that D.A. Bragg is doing with his 30 to 34 counts of garbage. I think we have to fight everyone But how can you dismiss when you don't know what's in it? I think we do know what's in it. We know that this was based on Stormy Daniels. We know that this was dismissed by the FEC and this was dismissed by federal prosecutors seven years ago. We know what's in it. It's a bunch of garbage. But even uh, uh, Karen McDougal was brought up uh, recently. There were other people who went in as Mm -hmm. witnesses to deal with other things other 
than Stormy Daniels, Karen McDougal, and so on. So we don't know exactly what is in it. So why would you or any of the legal team, any member of the legal team saying we're going to get this dismissed when they don't actually know what's in the indictment? Because even if Karen McDougal is in this, Don, that is also garbage. That is something that is age old and that is garbage. This is an extortion situation that he had his lawyer handle. I don't even know if he knew about it at the time. I don't believe he did. So a lawyer settles an extortion claim, gets an NDA signed, and, and somehow he's getting indicted. The facts are the facts. We have a woke DA who's now bringing a misdemeanor, stacking it, and trying to make it a felony. That's a fact, and we're going to fight it. I want to turn now to the DOJ case and the classified documents at uh, Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort. This is according to the Washington Post. The Washington Post is saying that federal investigators have gathered new and significant evidence that after the subpoena was delivered, that Trump looked through the contents of some of the boxes of documents in his home, apparently out of a desire to keep certain things in his possession. Do you know whether he reviewed certain classified documents after receiving the subpoena? No, I, am, I have nothing to do with that case. I do not know. You don't know if he, because you actually looked through some of the documents, correct? No, that's inaccurate. I did a search for the attorney general case. You looked at the, well, I mean, but you looked at the office and the residence and you did not see any documents? No, I wasn't looking for classified documents, no. And I think you could read my affidavit. It's public record. No, I was looking for tax documents on another garbage case by Letitia James. Okay. So in response to a request for a separate legal matter, the Attorney General Letitia James that you just brought up, you swore that on May 5th, 2022, that you diligently Mm -hmm. search respondents' personal office, meaning Donald Trump's, located at Mm Mar-a-Lago, including all desks, drawers, file cabinets, etc. Six days later, the DOJ would Mm -hmm. subpoena Trump for classified documents. If you did a diligent search, Alina, wouldn't you have seen the trove of classified documents that were eventually found there? Um, No, because if you look at the scope of what I did and what I was looking for, it was not classified documents and it had nothing to do with this case. I was looking for tax documents. Okay, so even if they were there, you don't think that you would have recognized them. Is that what you're saying? I don't know, but I know that I'm not in a deposition right now and I'm not going to continue with this conversation. But if you'd like to talk about what's currently happening, such as our corrupt system with AGs and our corrupt system with DAs and how they should all be brought in front of Congress and answer questions, happy to talk about that. Okay, Alina, listen, uh, with all due respect, we have you here. You're representing the Trump legal team. The former president is in uh, a series of legal threats right now, including the hush money payments, the DOJ classified Mm -hmm. documents, the Georgia election, the DOJ January 6th probe. And you're here to answer those questions. So in those, this is not a deposition. I'm just asking you questions on television respectfully. <laughs> so if we can just stick to the facts. So, yeah. Do you- oh, we can stick to the facts, Don. But what you're asking me is something that's unrelated to the Marilago case. It was for Letitia James's case. And I signed an affidavit. And it's very public. I recommend you read it. Okay. So you testified to the grand jury, though, in this case. What's, what's the sense of where that stands? You, you did testify to the grand jury in this case. Yes, that's not a secret. I testified to the grand jury. Yeah. So uh, I want you to stand by, Lena, because we have our Paula Reed here who has been following this as well, and she's going to weigh in on some of the questions. Uh, stand by. What do you have, Paula? What do you want to say? 
Yeah, so I think here we're seeing part of the defense strategy, right? It sounds like Alina Habe is making a lot of uh, the arguments in the court of public opinion, which is to attack the district attorney, uh, which is to say it's his First Amendment right to attack the judge, which certainly it is, but I don't think any uh, attorney would suggest that's a good idea uh, for their client. And as Alina just noted, uh, she has testified as part of the ongoing criminal investigation uh, into Mar-a-Lago, though she does not represent him in this case. Uh, you make a good point that there have been a lot of a lot of lawyers who have searched for various documents uh, at one point in time. And there are a lot of questions about why classified documents keep showing up, even though the former president has been out of office for so for so long now. But in terms of all these cases coming together, I mean, there is a question. How will this indictment in Manhattan impact the other the other investigations the former president is currently facing? So I think all of those questions are fair. But I did want to circle back. My IFB was not working. Uh, was Alina able to answer uh, the question about whether they want cameras in the courtroom? Yeah, she said she's for full transparency. Alina, do you want to respond to what Paula just said? On the question of if they'll have cameras in the courtroom, that's the criminal, you know, there's a criminal team and they'll decide that. How this affects other cases. How this affects other, I don't think it affects other cases. I think each case is different. Um, I would hope so. I don't think one case should affect the other. Alina Haba, thank you for appearing on CNN this morning. Thank you so much. Thank you. The 2024 Republican field for president just got a little bit bigger. Asa Hutchinson throwing his hat into the ring and he's calling for the front runner to step aside. We'll ask the former Arkansas governor why he decided to run next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson made news over the weekend as the latest Republican to announce he's running for president. He joins Donald Trump, Nikki Haley, and Vivek Ramaswamy, and his announcement comes as the Republican Party is grappling with news of Trump's indictment. At a time when much of the GOP is rallying around Trump, Hutchinson is calling for him to drop out of this race after being indicted. And he joins me now, the former governor of Arkansas, 2024 presidential candidate. Good morning, Governor, and thanks again. Uh, Good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. Obviously, my thoughts, all of our thoughts are the people of Arkansas, five dead after the horrible, tragic weather over the weekend. So we're thinking about all of them. Let's start with Trump and then we'll quickly move on to the actual issues that people will be judging you on. Um, You have said that you don't believe Trump should be in this race anymore because he has been uh, indicted. Do you see this as the beginning of the end for Trump politically? Uh, Not necessarily. Uh, There's a presumption of innocence that goes with him uh, as any criminal defendant is charged. Uh, But I said that he should step aside simply because uh, there is uh, the more regard should be given to the office of presidency than any individual person there concerns. But he's not but he's not going to step aside. He's going to get to uh, decide on this. And I'm okay with that. The voters should decide this. But uh, that's just a principle that I've followed through my public career, that the office is more important than the individual who's seeking it. You were a former prosecutor, a former U.S. attorney, actually. And I thought it was really interesting that following Trump's indictment, you said, quote, we don't want to erode confidence in our entire criminal justice system simply because we don't like the beginning parts of a case. It puts you in stark contrast to almost all of your fellow Republicans in office who have been slamming this investigation before knowing the facts and slamming the district attorney Bragg. And I wonder why you think they're wrong to do that. 
Well, I look at our criminal justice system, and it's really the hallmark of our democracy. It's the rule of law. You look at China, you look at Mexico, you look at so many countries, and uh, there's corruption. Uh, it's unreliable. And so our rule of law sets the United States apart. And while we have flaws in it that always need to be corrected and adjusted, everything we do should not be undermining our system. And so uh, there's thousands of people that are charged every day. Uh, some are acquitted of those charges and the system works. And ultimately a jury uh, decides these issues. So uh, I, if I was a prosecutor, I would not have brought this case because mm. I don't think it measures up based upon the facts that I know now. But let's let the facts yeah. come out. People can make their judgment yeah. on this, and ultimately the system's going to work. We don't know the facts. So let's move on to some of the key issues. Obviously, the tragic school shooting in Nashville just a week ago today, you led the NRA's response to Sandy Hook and that massacre at that elementary school and assessing what could be done differently. So far this year, there have been more mass shootings than days in the year. Guns are the leading cause of death now for young Americans, and Arkansas has the fifth highest rate of firearm deaths in the country. I wonder if you agree with your Republican colleagues who have said in the past few weeks that Congress has essentially done all it's going to do on guns. Well, I think uh, they're expressing it correctly that uh, we look at the uh, challenge of firearms in the schools, uh, and we need to have improved security. We need to continue to invest in that and also the mental health counseling that's important in our schools and identifying those that uh, might be a threat. Uh, and so that's the approach that I think is constitutional. And there being a political reality as well that there was a bipartisan uh, bill that was passed uh, led by Senator Cornyn and and uh, that uh, passed this last session, so I don't expect any additional action that's be taken. But let's continue as we have in Arkansas. We've invested in school safety. We had our own commission. We looked at how we can support our local schools in increasing the safety. Mm -hmm. It's tragic what happened in Nashville. Uh, that was a private school, and I hope that uh, uh, the families uh, will uh, have all the compassion that is appropriate under these circumstances. Our heart goes out to them. You talk about school security. I would just note there were armed guards at both Parkland and at Uvalde, and still this happened. I wonder if you, if you become the Republican nominee and if you were to be elected president, would you sign a national law raising the age to purchase an AR-15 to 21? Because you yourself floated the idea last year. I think that, uh, I mean, if Congress came into a consensus on that, uh, that's something that can be looked at. Uh, and so I'm open to that. Yes. Uh, whenever you look at uh, the bipartisan bill that passed, they approached it a different way, which was to enhance the background checked information that can look at uh, additional records to assure somebody that wasn't violent as a juvenile would have access as soon as they turned 18. So they approached it that way that should uh, provide additional protections. Every time we have a school incident, we should be looking at those facts as to how we can close a gap or we can improve the circumstances to protect our children better. I wanna talk about the issue of abortion because last year you told my colleague Dana Bash on this network that if Roe versus Wade were overturned, Arkansas's near total ban on abortion should be revisited and provide exceptions for rape and incest. 
which is it does not provide in the current law that you signed as governor. Well, Roe versus Wade has been overturned. So if you were president, would you sign any legislation that would codify protections for abortion for victims or rape or inc- of rape or incest? Well, the answer is yes, I would if that came to my desk. Mm-hmm. At the same time, when Roe versus Wade was reversed, it returned the authority to the states. And the states now can govern it. So Arkansas makes its uh, health care decisions uh, legislatively, but Mississippi, New Hampshire, Iowa, every state will make their own decision under the current uh, uh, law and the reversal of Roe versus Wade. It's a state prerogative, and you'll see different decisions made. That's right, unless Congress were to codify protections uh, nationally. Let me... Let, that's right. And that, that's what I was asking. Let me asking. just emphasize that. Yeah. I do support those three yeah. exceptions, rape and incest and life of the mother. appreciate you clarifying that. Let me ask you two final quick things, sir. Why do you want to be president? I want to be president because uh, I have a history of public service. When the country is in challenging times, I want to be able to offer my experience and my vision for a greater America. I believe that a president should call on call on bring out the America and not call on its worst instincts. That's the kind of leadership that I believe is important that I can offer for this country. Let's bring out the best of our country. My experience solving border challenges, immigration issues, national security issues, reducing taxes in Arkansas, a consistent conservative record that I can bring to the leadership of this country. I believe that's important and a message that uh, is optimistic for our country's future. You were head of the DEA. Next time we have you on, we'll talk about the opioid crisis. Finally, what do you think your greatest weakness is? Well, perhaps uh, I'm not uh, as exciting as as some candidates that are out there. I don't throw uh, bombs and uh, uh, torches all the time, uh, but uh, I am consistent. Uh, I bo- have a track record that's important, and I have a vision for America for border security, for the fentanyl crisis, and so things that we can bring people together, I think that's a, a, a great characteristic and history that I bring. Well, it says something about the Times to consider not throwing bombs or torches a weakness. Governor, we appreciate you. Please come back so we can talk about many of the other issues. Thanks so much. Good to be with you today. Yeah, good to have you. Don. Question, Poppy, why do you want to be president? Perfect question. Thank you very much for that. A frightening statement from the top U.S. general, why he says that he believes China thinks war with the United States is, quote, inevitable. Also, the Virginia teacher who was shot by one of her six-year-old students has now filed a lawsuit against the school. Her allegations ahead. All right, welcome back. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, says that he believes China has already surmised that war with the United States is inevitable, but the United States could potentially lower that risk. In my analysis of China is that uh, at least their military and perhaps others have come to some sort of conclusion that war with the United States is inevitable. I don't believe war is inevitable. I don't think it's imminent. But I do think that we need to be very, very pragmatic and cautious going forward, and we will reduce the likelihood of war if we remain really, really strong uh, relative to China, and China knows that we have the will to use it uh, if necessary. 
CNN's Natasha Bertrand is joining us live this morning from the Pentagon. Natasha, these comments were really notable coming from Milley. Obviously, you know, he's chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff only for several more months, but he was talking about lowering the rhetoric when it comes to China. A notable comment there. Very notable, Caitlin, and it's something that the chairman has been saying, essentially that China believes, according to the U.S. intelligence, that war with the United States is going to be, quote, inevitable. And that is because, again, according to Chairman Milley, there is a sense in the Chinese government that the Chinese president wants their military to be able to take over the island of Taiwan by the year 2027. And so what Milley believes and what the U.S. military tends to believe is that that is going to potentially take place, that the Chinese are going to try to absorb uh, Taiwan militarily here. So what uh, Milley has been saying is that the U.S. needs to prepare Taiwan for that possibility, right? And he added in those remarks that he believes the U.S. actually needs to speed up its shipment of weapons and arms to Taiwan in order to prepare them for that possibility. But again, he is saying all of this as a hypothetical. He believes it is important to get Taiwan ready for this possibility, but that he does not necessarily believe it is inevitable. However, as the U.S. military has said repeatedly, and as Biden has said the U.S., of course, is prepared to come to Taiwan's defense if China does try to make a move on it, Caitlin. Yeah. And we should also point out that uh, Kevin McCarthy has just confirmed he will be meeting with the president of Taiwan on Wednesday in California. We'll be watching that. Natasha Bertrand, thank you. And new this morning on CNN, Abby's Warner, the Virginia teacher who was shot by her six-year-old student, is suing the staff at Richneck Elementary School for $40 million in damages for failing to take action when there were concerns the boy had a firearm the day of the shooting. The lawsuit alleges that the school administrators and the school board were also aware of the child's history of random violence, including strangling a teacher while in kindergarten, and that his parents refused to place him in special education classrooms. This morning... Zormer's lawyers spoke to NBC explaining who this lawsuit is against and why. The allegations are, and we believe the facts will support, the fact that they knew that they had three complaints, and then eventually a teacher comes down there and says one of the students has actually seen the gun. At that point in time, you have a ticking time bomb in the school, and the school failed to do anything about it. That's what they've maintained up until today, that that is just part of the job. It's an assumption of the job that a four, first grade teacher is going to be shot by their own student, a six-year-old. Uh, that is unacceptable. That's outrageous. Um, and that's not what happened here. And need to tell you that CNN reached out to the attorney for the Newport News school system, the private attorney for the former principal and city of Newport News Monday morning. They did not receive a response. Well, communities across the South and the Midwest are facing huge cleanup after just devastating tornadoes ripped through the region. We'll take you live next to Arkansas. You can see the damage there in Arkansas. As authorities this morning are warning that more extreme weather is on the way, a monster storm system spawned more than 50 tornadoes across the South and Midwest in recent days, killing at least 32 people. With winds of up to 165 miles per hour, you can see here the storms flattened homes, brought down trees and power lines, and left debris everywhere. CNN's Derek Van Dam is live in Wynn, Arkansas. Derek, I mean, just to see what is behind you is remarkable in and of itself. What are you hearing from people on the ground there? 
Well, uh, that the moment that the tornado came through, it, it changed their lives in a matter of seconds. It's really incredible to think that the threat of more severe weather and tornadoes just weighs so heavily on the residents of Wynn, Arkansas that was damaged so badly. Uh, this actually used to be a home. We know that it's not just in Arkansas, but uh, they're waking up to so much heartache across Tennessee, Indiana, Illinois as well. And uh, this home is, is incredible. We're going to get to a story about it in just one second, but I want you to see, uh, I spoke to a resident, Jesse Wilson, who lives in the apartment complex behind me. And uh, she actually had shrapnel from this Grace uh, First uh, Baptist Church that flew across the road and hit into her window, splatting, uh, uh, smashing the window around her as she slept. And listen to her harrowing encounter as she stepped outside to survey the damage and what she noticed with her neighbor's home. She was looking around, she was looking around, and then all of a sudden she said, where's my mother? She said, where's my mother? She said, I can't find my mama. She started calling mama, mama, and she started calling her name. And when they found her up under that board, she was smashed. She was dead. It was just horrible. Her daughter just started screaming and hollering. It was horrible. It was horrible. Where's her house? There's no house. Everything was just gone. Sadly, this is the, the remnants of the home where the woman lost her life. And so far this season, we have already had over two times the amount of tornado-related fatalities compared to last year. And we still haven't even reached the peak of tornado season. We know that the threat of tornadoes exists tomorrow from here all the way through the Midwest. Caitlin? Yeah, that's what's so scary. Haven't even hit the peak yet. Derek yeah. Van Dam, it's hard to see all that destruction behind you. We are thinking of everybody there. Please let them know. Uh, and thank you for that. In just hours, a major announcement for NASA's first manned mission to orbit the moon in five decades. NASA Administrator Mr. Bill Nelson standing by for a preview. <laughs> SNL's Michael Che and Colin Jost have a history of torturing each other with their comedy bits. For April Fool's, Che pulled off a prank with the help of the live audience. During the segment, Jost just couldn't figure out why his jokes weren't landing. Watch. Say it again. Great news for conservatives, New York is finally cracking down on crime. At this point, it feels like even pro-Trump people have moved on. I mean, I went down to the courthouse today, and I was the only protester there. <laughs> uh, I told them not to laugh at you, favorite food. <laughs> Am I not Mike? And then I was just like, oh, I just suck. <laughs> meanest thing you've ever done. <laughs> I was, I'm covered in sweat. <laughs> no, 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 don't you even dare. Don't you even dare cry now. That was pretty good. It was a very yeah. good one. That frequently happens to me. You guys never laugh at my jokes. That's not true at all. <laughs> Except it's not a joke. <laughs> wow. See what I mean? NASA now 
NASA's Shall we like, move why on? aren't we being brought into this? <laughs> NASA now getting set to take another giant step. What will happen during the moon mission in five decades? NASA Administrator Bill Nelson joins us next. next. He's like, just leave me out of it. <laughs> Fly me to the moon. Let me play among the stars. That is one of my very favorite songs. Frank, fly me to the moon. NASA is taking a major step forward in doing just that. In just about two hours, NASA will announce the names of the four astronauts who will take part in next year's Artemis II mission. This will be the first crewed flight to orbit the moon in more than 50 years. To get everyone excited, NASA released this hype video. Here it is. It's a new era of pioneers, star sailors, Thinkers and adventurers. Go, prop, go, go, Fido, go. All right, go, go for launch. Our destiny is always to go and see what's further and what's next. Movie yeah, it is, right? Hype and NASA. Oh, there he is. The voice was good. You may recognize it. There he is. Joining us now <laughs> from Houston, the man in charge of the NASA administrator is NASA administrator Bill Nelson. Thank you, sir. We appreciate you joining us. How are you feeling about this? Hey, what a great day. You're going back to the moon after a half century. <laughs> You're going to be announcing a crew of three Americans, one Canadian. Tell us about, uh, about them and how important their mission will be to the Artemis program. Well, we're going back to the moon, but this is just the beginning because we're going back to learn to live, to create, to invent in order to go to Mars and then beyond. So this is mankind, humankind's further quest to reach out and explore this vastness of the cosmos and to understand better who we are, where we are, what we are. That's our that's our frontier spirit. I was just gonna say, Poppy, right. doesn't that sound like space? The final frontier. It totally does. The voyages. It totally <laughs> does. It's exciting, and you talked about Mars, which is sort of the ultimate goal after the moon, but talking about this initial goal, um, you told Politico, I think it was back in January, that we are in a space race with China. So the first time around it was Russia, now it's China. Mm. Talk about that in the context, the political context of where we are vis-a-vis -vis China right now. And isn't that interesting? Yeah. Russia is our partner, even though on the face of the earth, we're having such difficulty with President Putin. But uh, they've been our partner in space since 1975 in the middle of the Soviet Union in the Cold War. Uh, now China is the aggressor. They're, they're good. They have uh, really increased their capacity in the last 10 years, and they are openly saying they're going to the moon. And uh, we want to get to that South Pole of the moon before they do, because if they get there and they say, this is ours, you stay out. That's where the resources are. Mm -hmm. That's where water is. And if you have water, you have rocket fuel, mm -hmm. hydrogen and oxygen. 
That's so important. I mean, I know you've said, look what's happening in the South China Sea. You believe that's something that could happen if China does get there first. And so we're so excited about this mission and what this is going to look like to find out the names of these astronauts today. But that context that you just gave gave us there really shows how how important this is and how serious this mission is, right? Uh, Indeed. Uh, But it's also Uh, a way of inspiring our people. Look what the Apollo program 50 years ago did for a generation of engineers and mathematicians and scientists. Walk into any school classroom in America today and look at those little faces as they light up, Uh, particularly if you're wearing a blue suit like this. Uh, They are excited and they want to be a part of it. And it's the Artemis generation now. Yeah, I, I think that's so right, because this weekend, Sienna, my almost seven year old, her birthday's next Monday, asked for a cake and said, I don't want rainbows and unicorns. I want outer space. Oh, nice. And to hear that from a little girl, because the last time we saw men on the moon. Uh, that's right. And when we land, hopefully it's late 25 uh, on the third mission. Uh, then it will be the first woman and the next man that will walk on the moon. Yeah. I I think it's important. The Artemis program not only seeks to send Americans to the moon, but eventually Mars. 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 That's great. Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure. Good luck, and we appreciate you appearing. Have a great day. You too. so excited. That was great. All right, so it's also an exciting day here at CNN, the debut of CNN News Central with our friends and colleagues, John Berman, Kate Baldwin, Sarah Seidner. CNN News Central starts now. That's it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.